0: Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Busky. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now.
2: Good morning and welcome to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am your host Marie Buskey and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. Another busy show for you again this morning. First up, I interview everyone's favourite tornado of truth, Dai Landy from Manawahini Korero. This morning we will talk about the next event for Manawahini, Korero in Wellington next week and then we'll also have a change of pace. We'll discuss the state of corrections in New Zealand and the untold realities of those entering the corrections system. I'll then play a flashback from Ellie Marine Diamond from Wahini Toa Rising. This is a full and frank conversation about the realities of the sex trade and the dangers of the current permissive environment in New Zealand. I play this for context because the following interview is with Katrina whose story appears on the Wahini rising website and we'll discuss what it's like being a child of a sex worker and the impacts that those have. Marty of course will be back with media matters and we'll check in on how things are progressing in political limbo land and how our media is occupying themselves while they wait for the final votes to be counted. The election has concluded on Aotearoa Farm, but not all is decided in the farmyard. As reported last week, Winnie Ben arrived with his usual style, strutting into the farmyard, brushing off questions from the anxious ovine, desperate for any tidbit of news. Swishing into the farmyard with him were a collection of back paddock dwellers, many who'd been banished for holding opinions contradictory to those held by the pigs. Worst yet, in Winnie's cohort were those despised chickens. The pigs, sheep, and all who ruled the farm under Napoleon's iron grip started to glance furtively across to other farms in preparation for the need to make a hasty move, such as Napoleon executed so swiftly earlier in the year. Winnie Ben and his rabble had uncensored speech powers around the farmhouse table, and this was making many animals nervous, as the stories woven by Napoleon, Chippy and Squealer may start to unravel, and everyone knows how wily and determined the old donkey can be. Oinky was quietly talking to Davy Piglet, who lives in the sty next door. They agree on so many changes for the farm, but Davy has much bolder plans than Oinky is prepared to stomach. One of which is Davy's plan to quell the rising menace from the radical Kunikunis, manipulated by their shady Svengali tama. This already had created squeals and snorts from the elite Kuni, and violence, whilst not threatened, has been implied. This makes Winky sweat. As Winky waits for the final votes to be counted, the hoping that their thin majority will hold is looking less and less likely. Perhaps Winnie Ben could be of use after all. It was the sheep who were uncharacteristically skittish. Those who occupied the pastures near the heart of the farm had grown fat and compliant under Squealer's constant ministrations of feed, in return for mass messaging with no questioning. Under Oinky Larks, this looks like it will come to an end. Oinky has promised to look into all the animals who draw feed directly from the farmhouse – Double the number from Farmer John's day, and this has created an ill uneasiness from the sheep and pigs especially. Many have grown unaccustomed to life away from the riches of the farmyard, and as rumours swirl around of the trucks to the works having been ordered, as the final votes are being counted, many animals are praying for miracles. One animal who is facing being sent out to less premium paddocks is shalala, A gelded show pony with a flowing mane and shiny coat who prances up and down the fence lines of the most prodigious pastures, whinnying and neighing, spreading fanciful tales of animals' abilities to change not only from stallion to filly, ewe to ram, but geldings can have foals and weathers can have lambs. These fairy tales were lapped up by Napoleon and her ilk, but it now appears not even all the glitter in the world can save Shalala from a life more ordinary and real work under the yoke and not of the woke. To help cheer up the farmyard's gloomy mood, the cats have announced a movie night on the back of the barn. Cossie Paula, a friend of Kitty Kate's, has made a mockumentary after the occupation on the farmhouse footsteps by the chickens and many of the farm's animals protesting at the draconian drenching programme being rolled out on Aotearoa farm. The feathered fury worked hard to paint the chickens in a poor light and was guaranteed to back up the mood of the pigs and those facing an uncertain future or less feed. Oh dear, it appears that Pussy and Kitty are failing to read the room. It was the support of these chickens that has brought Winnie Ben back to the farmhouse. And as Winnie Ben says, donkeys live a long time and no one's ever seen a dead donkey. Make sure you stay tuned for the next installment of Aotearoa Farm exclusively here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture. Here with Marie on Reality Check Radio, and you guys ask me for this every single time, and I am happy to oblige. You always ask for more die and more die You shall get dye, Landy mm. Good morning and welcome,
5: Kiara Marie. Thank you for having me again.
2: No, and we were yabbering away before, and I said, "Look, we need to get, we need to, we need to, we've got to go, we've got to do this." To do this.
5: Yes. this is the problem with you and I.
2: We talk far too much, and actually, we're we're going to go a little bit more serious uh, this time. This. This has been a topic that you've been wanting to talk about for a bit, and, and it's the uns, sort of the unspoken story and truth of what's going on within our correction service and our prisons at the moment.
5: Yes, I've, I've noticed New Zealand has a a thread of punitive, you know, people don't care about these prisoners. It's, yeah, well, they're in there, they're bad, but, you know, people have to remember they are there as punishment, not for punishment. Mm. You know, lo- losing your liberties and having someone watch your shit every day and being locked up and being told when you can do stuff, when you can stand, sleep, sit, shit, walk, that's what you're losing.
1: Mm.
5: You, you don't need any more than that, in, in my opinion. Um, I I think our prisons are a bit of a, a bit of a mess, actually. Like, it's it's quite incredible, especially the use of segregation. Now, I was doing a bit of reading about the segregation, and we all know about Mahi Bassett, and she was in there for four months as a concentrated effort to break her spirit. um, And yet the rules are that you can't go to segregation for more than two weeks. So so
2: for those who don't know Mihi's story, give us an overview of what that is.
5: Oh, well he was locked up, you know violent crimes in Arahata, and for whatever for whatever reason it, it, from what I've read, it seems she was targeted like they were pepper spraying her and I mean this is an asthmatic some you know and like they had her in sex for four months which is you're isolated and the only people you see are the guards bringing your food. And then when the rest of the prison is locked down, you may be let out for your exercise. Um, You know, I, I personally don't care what she did. This is inhumane. Stop treating our woman like garbage. I, I can't remember. It would have been hena She's locked up. I believe she's out now. She did take a case against the department about it. I'm not sure how that's going, but, you know, locking someone up for four months is really inhumane. People think the witty riot happened oh, probably because they wanted KFC. It wasn't because they had no running water, couldn't bathe, the food was shit, and they couldn't wash themselves, and that the... Um, the prison, its actual self, was condemned by the ombudsman that it's not fit for purpose. Mm. No, no, it's because they wanted KFC. You know, these kids in A in, and in youth centres are getting on the roof because they want KFC. Wake up.
2: How yes, bad
5: so, is it in there?
2: So there seems to be a real imbalance between some places being exceptionally bad and some places actually functioning quite well. So, I mean, I'm here in the base so and Mangaroa is the men's prison that's here. And I think they're probably more on the better side of the scale because I know, like, for example, in my day job, we supply yarn there. They have like uh, craft programmes. They have uh, prison release work programmes where prisoners actually go out and do work in the community. A number of them did a lot of work during the flood relief. It is very dependent on who's in charge at the time.
5: Well, it is. And, and like, if we look at, um, say, Rumataka, they haven't had in-person visits for over a year. It's all audio-visual. Now, this is actively destroying families. Mm -hmm. To not see children, like, a couple of months is a long time in a child's life. Arahata, it's been 18 months, And, and they're shipping people all over the mutu away from their support. We've got people on remand, and because of the backlog in courts, you know, remand, some people can be on remand for eight months, for goodness sake. Problem with that is they do not have... Access to programs until they're sentenced. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you're, so remand is limbo land, really, isn't it, it? It is limbo land. There's nothing happening in remand. Um, and the prisons run differently, like at um, Rimataka, the men there are locked up for 23 hours of the day, 22 hours of the day, and only audio visuals. Arahata, same deal. And then women are moved out of Arahata and they're away from their support, their programmes and everything. So by the time they hit parole, they have no proof they've been working to do something because they've been moved away. The programmes get interfered with the family unit. And just as a general rule, when men come out of prison, they come out to a home. Mm. They come out to their missus and their kids. Not so for women, not so much. Women come out, some other bloody skanks moved in, all the furniture's been sold, the house is gone, kids are somewhere else. So quite often, women are released to nothing. Mm. And, And they're released with their $350 Steps to Freedom if they happen to have any money on their in their bank account, that gets deducted from the steps to freedom. Three hundred and fifty bucks won't even get you a night in town.
1: Mm.
2: So, so this is one of the conundrums, isn't it? Because I know that prisons, knowing people that work in prisons, that they they there you've got these really incredibly dedicated people that want to set up rehabilita- rehabilitation programs to actually help and assist uh, prisoners to either break bad habits that they had that got them there in the first place or yes. create networks to be able to move forward with their lives going forward and there and that work does go on however it sounds like the reality of this is that they will do that work within the system if they get that and then they'll just literally dump them back into the environment that created the problem in the first place
5: and and there's no um continuity like you like to say it depends on the prison that you're at and like at the moment we've got 44 percent of women in jail are on remand 57 percent of them are moldy. we have 31 people charged with murder or manslaughter on e-bail i I kind of disagree with that marie you know if that extreme level of violence you should not be put on a bracelet i don't care how empty they are so how (laughs) do they decide
2: how do they decide because i mean obviously they've been I mean, what did they, something like the prison population has reduced by about 20% in the last three years. But how do they, it seems so random of how they decide who gets electronic monitoring and who gets locked up and remand. I mean, how does that decision get made?
5: Well, I I presume cultural reports are done because 15 of those 31 people for the murder and manslaughter, 15% are Maldi nine are a park, 15 are mouldy, nine are here, four a P.I., one Asian, and there's two unknown ethnicity. So we've got a broad range there. But if you look at the stats, like they just keep climbing and climbing and climbing. Life is hard. I'm not excusing prisoners. But there's people in there that should not be in there. But because our mental health system is so broken, no matter how much money they've poured into it, must have been on all their fancy morning tea's.
1: Mm. because it hasn't
5: done any improvements. People with severe mental health problems should not be in jail, and yet the jail's full of them. Um, I was doing some reading about trans prisoners. I've done OIAs, and I got told there was four trans prisoners in the woman's estate. And then I was looking back at older OIAs, and from 2014 to 2019, 22 men applied to go to the woman's prison and they all succeeded 22 22 men have gone through the women's prisons now we know from the um, what are they, the submissions we did around the uh, birth, deaths and marriages a uh, man was a corre- ex-corrections officer and he spoke about the assaults and the pregnancies that were happening and occurring in jails, women's jails by these tranny men because 99% of trans men are sexual deviants. That's the stats that have come out from Claire Dremon, I think her name is. But it's and they do not lose their criminality.
2: Because that's the other thing. You would have thought that corrections would want to be very proactive at not having biological men mixed within a female population. Because if pregnancies occur, they they don't want to have that like shone on their own officers at being potentially the perpetrators of these pregnancies, would they?
5: That's right. I mean, you know, it won't be long before, you know, our numbers are vastly different to overseas, but it is nonetheless very shocking, you know, like there's 800 in, I think it's California or Washington, 800 men with their synthetic sex identity in the woman's estate. So, you know, they're telling me there's four in there but I'm reading at OIA that 22 men have applied and 22 men have been successful. Corrections guidelines states that a man cannot apply or be considered to go to a jail of his choice if he's offended against that gender in the last seven years. They're not even following their own guidelines. They put that Richard Matthew Nelson in straight into the woman's estate in Auckland. And here's the man that stabbed up three people in the restaurant in Hamilton. And his first appearance, he was Richard Matthew Nelson. His next one, he was Emma. And now he's Pandora Electra. I mean, even the name tells you they're taking the piss.
2: Yeah.
5: Yeah. I mean, that just
2: says mental health, doesn't it? Ding, ding,
5: ding. And and so now lawyers will be going, I'll just say you're a woman. And then we had a, female to male go to jail, and, of course, she bloody shit her pants and get me out of here, wah, 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 and was put back in the woman's. Now, I agree with that. She's a woman. What I don't agree with is the double standards. Mm. And so, you know, we've got men in the woman's estate, and and then you've got people going, oh, they need the trans health care. Bro, you're in jail mental health care but I mean they even struggle to get that don't they yes but then they want to apply binders and makeup and tape so they can tuck their nuts up and bro you're in jail how does this no just no you know people go to jail to lose their liberties they should not be affirmed in there. That is one instance where they should not be affirmed. It is delusional and dangerous. So our taxpayers' money is going to supply these men in prison with binders and stuff, and, and women, what? No, 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 you can't even get programmes in there, or rehab programmes. You can't even get enough staff, but you think that these grannies are so special that they deserve gender-affirming health care while in jail. That just blows my mind. Mm. You know, yeah, you yeah, no, no, <laughs> it's no. I'm I'm just up with no. And- well, I
2: know that there is. It's one of those things that I think it's a convenient thing for for people to memory hold. It's like not, you know, it's not the sort of thing you bring up in polite conversation. But speaking with Hanatamaki, she was saying how frustrated they have been, of uh, they've, you know, they have petitioned Calvin Davis repeatedly. Yes. about allowing them to go in with their Man Up program initially, but also her prog- her legacy program for women. They are getting results. They are making yes. a difference, and they won't let them go in there because no. heaven forbid they'll stop worshipping the secular God of the state and might actually find the
5: Lord. Yes, Yes, it's incredible. Like you know, they're very polarizing the keys, and all I can say is deeds, not words. Yes,
2: yeah. Well, I'm very much on that front as yeah. well. You know, it's it is that judge a man by his actions, and yes, and, they um, have, and I just cannot see.
5: I, to me, that's incredibly short sighted. Yes, it is, and um, like the work they have done. For for, And I'll say our people, Māori people, predominantly Māori people, is incredible. And all people can do is go, wah, wah, wah. Oh, they're this, they're that. They don't like gays. They don't like this. Well, no, no. Deeds, not words, Mari. You know, Mm. I I can't say what they believe in. I'm not them. But by their deeds, I can see what sort of people they are, irrelevant of the public persona they've portrayed. Yeah well and and
2: ultimately at the end of the day when they and this is the thing that frustrates me with those that sit on that social fence where they sort of uh say oh you know we've done this and we're trying to improve things in prisons and it's like well either throwing money at it or and throwing money that doesn't go anywhere no just
5: just money on consultants isn't
2: fixing it is it
5: no no it's not too there's too much um dead weight with this consultancy you know and i've Always, not always, but I've mostly reviewed research as just people getting fat off the backs of people, hmm. you know, especially the disenfranchised. And um, I was looking at our SIF um, stats because I believe SIFs is a feeder to the prisons. When when I worked with the homeless, you know, like eighty five percent had been in some state care in their formative years. And most of our clients were out of jail and might have you. Um back in the day, I don't know what the law is now, but the only people we didn't have to house were arsonists. Legally, you weren't obliged to house them. But you know, it's the housing game at the moment, it's really hard finding people from prison work, home, setting them re-back up, reintegrating them all on 350 bucks. Mm. And that hasn't changed in, I believe, 30 years. Mm. That for steps to freedom, and um, and then the problem with that is, you know, I think, like, oh yeah, that'll set them up. But bro, these people are released on a Friday afternoon, and then they have to walk to the wind's office, and then it's closed. So, oh hey ho, what are they going to do for the weekend, and then go back on Monday? You know, I'm I'm not surprised the recidivism rate is so high. Yeah. The programs are not tried and true. Whereas if you look at Legacy and you look at Man Up. They they speak for themselves. Yeah. So, what are um, some of
2: the what's some of the stats from SIFs that you've seen?
5: Well, we've got nearly over ten thousand kids in SIFs care, and that's foster as well as residential. And unfortunately, the latest um, policies and everything for the rainbow is. It's really scary. I'll send them to you, but they've got a very captive audience. It's all enforced in state care. And um, one of the things I wrote about was, you know, Nan's got the children, the moko, because mum and dad are in jail. Now, mum and dad come out and, you know, they gave Nan da- um, sons and they come out to daughters. You know, that's a terrible thing <laughs> to happen because, you know, this social transition is not harmless. You know, they are irreparably harming these children. Now, every child in state care, whether it's a foster home or residential, is traumatised. It is going to be very hard for traumatised children to ignore the love bombing they get from the rainbow. It's going to feel good, and Lordy knows they deserve to feel good, you know, from whichever trauma led them there. And so I'm really fearful that these kids in state care, I believe over 50% of them are going to be irreversibly harmed. And then these, you know, I think 80% end up in jail.
2: It's like
5: a pipeline. You no, know, you
2: know, it's interesting you say that. So I did an interview several months ago with Walt Heyer. Now he's an American who works in the space. He's one of the oldest detransitioners. He's in his 80s now. Yes. He's yes. Incre- oh, he's such wow. a wonderful gentleman. I just re- I had a lovely chat to him. Now he was saying that there are trauma, um, there's a trauma index, and I can't remember the acronym he used for it. And there are 10 elements on that. Index and if you've actually had more than I think was it four experienced more than four your proportionality to be someone who falls into this gender trap or falls into crime it is it it covers all of these negative effects for your yes. future and your upbringing. Yes. and he said if you prevent any as many of those steps on that ten step letter he said you will prevent so many issues. And you're just
5: describing. All of that, aren't you? Yes, it is. And and that's what I mean about researchers. We know. You can put your pen down, bro. Mm. We know so, the stats. We so know where what's it is, um For
2: Māori in this situation, uh, a lot of, if you were to believe, those that, you know, occupy the airwaves, <laughs> that there is uh, funding, funding that is coming in more fun- and and actually for somebody who is a lay person that doesn't have any contact with Māori world at all and they're sitting at home and they're watching their one news and they're feeling good about themselves and they're going, oh, look at all this money that's going to Māori. Why aren't they sorting this out? out. So A, is the funding going into haora or hapū or certain iwi or marae to actually set programmes up for these people, or is it a classic case of it will get to a certain place within uh, the iwi construct? Because let's face it, these iwis are corporations now. Yes, yes. And and doesn't go anywhere. um, So what's your observation on that?
5: Well, what I've observed is that it's still volunteers on the outside, picking up the mums, waiting for the men to come out, working with the children, still all volunteers. I You know, the money gets to um, a place and then it just gets siphoned off. You know, one thing I notice when people go banging on about these cultural reports, oh, they're $1,000 or however much they are. Yeah, but you're quite happy to pay a psychologist more. Hmm. So, I, you know, people really begrudge Māori anything, but you'll give it to a, I don't know, a tauiwi psychologist the same amount of pute without it blinking an eye, you know, and it's just, oh, no, they get this and that. I think people will be surprised, and Calvin Davis said this a couple of years ago, that three years of the corrections budget is more than all treaty settlements.
2: Yeah, that doesn't. It actually doesn't surprise me at all.
5: yeah, yeah and that's yeah, no. the problem
2: because you sort of say to yourself, "Where is this going?" And I, I, I just have this feeling that so much of it is either they'll do some great work within the prison, but then there's no support for when they get out. So where yes. do they go and what do they do? Or yeah. a lot of what is there is almost a virtue signalling, like what you're saying, like with the yes. rainbow, and, and it looks good on paper, it looks yes. good in a press release, it looks good when the yes. cameras are allowed to come in and, and you want to get a story in the news cycle. But in reality, is it making a positive effect for those people that need it the most?
5: I've Not that I've seen, and the recidivism rates. Yeah, I'm sorry, because I've mixed that word up all the time because I use, I've use i mixed it up for my name on Facebook. You know, the rates are high. I don't see any, you know, there's no no one shouting from the rooftops, wow, this programme works. The programmes that are working, which is Legacy and Man Up and Tūtangata, are not utilised because, ah, oh, you didn't fill the papers in Right. You know, and the amount of times I've heard this over my life for moldy oh, you can't have that. The papers weren't filled in right. Uh, well, why don't you fill them in for us? We have an oral culture. Hey, you here know, you the go.
2: here's an idea Kiri Tapu <laughs> Allen is now going to be a consultant of chaos.
0: Oh, hey, she's she's she's
2: going to have a little. She's she's interacting now with the system she used to run. <laughs> Maybe you should say to Kitty Tapu, "Hey, Kitty Tapu, here we go. If you want to help your people, this is what you can do to help your people."
5: Yes, get out of the corporate world, your corporate whore. Jesus, you know, because at the bottom, people are broken and it doesn't matter whether you're Māori, Pākehā, P.I., Asian, none of that matters. All that matters is they're broken and we need to do things better. Like remand, it's just dead time. Why aren't programmes installed then? Why aren't counselors put in then? And then the way it works is everything has to be okay by the prisoner. So, you know, and that's all time, and then it depends on the workers. Some workers are really lazy and just, oh, I've got to unpack that box and what have you. But I'm appalled that the prisons have had 12 to 18 months with no in-person visits. That is very inhumane. It is against human rights, and nobody cares Mm. that all these families are further broken. You know, a year in a child's life is a lifetime.
2: Yeah. How are they
5: going to, you know, then they have to reconnect with mum or dad on the outside and that's really hard because, I'm, you know, people come out of prison and and they're just shell-shocked. There's institutionalisation, there's, you know, it takes them a little while to get their feet on the ground and stuff and then with everything against them, I'm not surprised they turn back to crime.
2: It's, you know, it it is interesting because I know the the experience with Mangaroa back in the day when I first moved here, a job that I had for a few years was uh, in a small goods company and quite a large, actually the company is sort of still around, but it's morphed and changed and moved. Anywho, you can imagine small goods, Christmas hams. So we get really, really, really busy at Christmas time. And for us, Christmas started actually from about now. And it was absolutely chock-a-block until mid-December. You need temporary staff. And one of the things, of course, with a lot of Māori and a lot, uh, particularly through the middle part of New Zealand, is a lot of them have experience at freezing works in one form or another. So they've got knife skills, butchery skills. And we would go in, we had an HR team that would go in and work with the team at Mangaroa and they would go through and bring prisoners out on early release ones that were getting close to the ends of these sentences yeah. and they would say to them right you guys can get released early directly into this work program with us in the small yeah. goods and some so the ones with knife skills would go into uh the butchery areas the ones that didn't we'd have finishing boxing yes. and the only thing you had to make sure was not to cross gang lines because that yes Got that's very we, real.
5: That's,
2: that's very, very real. real. Yes. Uh, but if you didn't do that and you pulled those people in, the difference that it made, because it pulled them into an environment, and I mean our staff would more than double in that time. So you had a culture, you had camaraderie, you had people there, yes. they were back, they were They were working and earning money on their own two feet, heading into a time of year that's financially pressured anyway. And often it was enough to get them on their feet to get them Get them up and running, yes. and the and the really good ones would get hired back on as staff. You mm. know they were um, uh, full time, and you saw a huge difference. And none of us, you know, none of us gave rats ass that they'd come out on the early release program. Right. That was then. This is now. You know, let's let's get the job done yes. for now. And the difference that it made. And it's you know, you and huge I huge difference. Huge. And this dehumanization. We've seen this tactic, haven't we? In yes. recent years, and that happens, it's- I believe, for those those prisoners
5: it does like if if you're just say you're working in the kitchen in prison there's three pay working anywhere in the prison there's three pay scales okay so it's 20 cents an hour 40 cents an hour and 60 cents an hour so, you know, you're getting 15 to 30 bucks a week for working full time in there. But the your buy up or whatever it's called, you know, where you can buy yourself biscuits and noodles is all market price. You know, so your biscuits are still three or four dollars, um, you know, the noodles, are they're all market prices. Might be a little bit less, but not from what I've seen. So I just think it's crazy. Like I remember a time when prisons used to grow the food for the... um. What's that called? The tourism industry in Topol. Mm. You know, but mm. okay, no, the alcohol stills and everything kind of paid to that. But, you know, like I believe locking people up for longer than 18 hours a day with no work, with no programs is the perfect recipe for disaster. Mm. You know, that's because you're left even in, in recovery circles. You know, one of the sayings is work is your best therapy.
2: Well, I know that they do that a lot here. You know, I, ju- I just, uh, it's crazy. It is, it, it is, is just...
5: it's crazy. And, and knowing that 85% of these people have, have been in SIFs. Mm. So that's
2: also- where. That- and that cycle starts, and it's education. I had this conversation with uh, when Erica when we prepare the election from the candidate for New Zealand First, mm-hmm. and she said that, you know, in terms of breaking all of these cycles and making things better, you need to take things right back from that educational standpoint, preschool. You know, you've yep. got to get those foundations right for these kids, and it's even broken back there.
5: Yes. Like uh, our literacy rates for children is 50%. What the hell? Mm. what the hell, like, and so you've got illiterate people, that, I mean, that must be so frustrating not being able to read and, and know what's being said on paper. You've got them from out of their own hometown, so they've got no support. They're mixing them up everywhere. Um, they're a lot harder in the women's prisons, like the segregation's used a lot more in the women's prison than the men's. Right, So like back to Mihi Bassett, they were just hosing her with bloody that mace spray, whatever it's called, which isn't in use in the UK, but it is here. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be, but unless we have highly trained officers that, well, that don't have skin in the game, you know, we need some understanding that people do not wake up and go, right, this is it, I'm going to completely wreck my life, here I go. Hmm. It's a process. It, 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 it's a process. And there's, you know, and when we see them in SIPs as the pipeline to corrections, it's just, whoa. Um something it's got to change. Mm. It has to change. And even in all the SIPs homes, they pretty awful. Mm. So, I mean, in your lifetime, in
2: my lifetime, one of the things that I've really noticed that has worsened, particularly, so I'm t- again talking with the Māori context, but I think this will go for yeah. Pacifica too, is the disconnection that they have either with their spirituality, whether it be their cultural spirituality, the Te yes. or the um, with a higher power, with Christianity or another religion. Yes. And since that has left, and the secular, the secularisation has come in, I worry. I worry about the likes of Te Pāti Māori because I can see themselves as a spirit, they're trying to place themselves as a cultural or spiritual replacement. And from, from what I've seen overseas, to me, this is dangerous. What is your thoughts on that?
5: Very dangerous, you know, the, the arrogance to presume that you have that persona to carry off that role. I mean, excuse me, you know, it is the breakdown of our wairua and our beliefs, and and then, you know, now we've got all these fresh, because I think all all universities should be closed. They're teaching shit. They need to be closed and cleaned out because we're getting these universities coming back to the marae, infecting the marae, and it's like, One thing that really confuses me, Marie, is that as Māori, we've never trusted the state, never, you know, and so I don't understand all this trust in the state now. They, they're not our friends they've never stood by us they've never done well by us so why are you trusting them now you know it completely blows my mind so why so what do you why do you think that is do you think that's
2: financial because I have to, I agree with you it is because usually there is a deep distrust which is why when the vaccination program came out you can tell there was almost like an age gap because you could tell the ones that of a certain age they were kind of like hmm what's going on here because of that? generational yes, I, distrust, and
5: then they were the ones like, oh, sweet ass, bro, roll up the sleeve, yeah, two shots for summer, all, all good, sweet as, yeah. let's do it. And and then you had youth lining up because, you know, they were bribing them with um, pack and save vouchers yeah. and all money and what have you, and some of these youth lined up twice <sighs> up on, up Northland, you know, oh yeah, I just had three or, or what have you, I've had a couple, oh, got myself 200 bucks, bro. You know, the poverty, the grinding poverty is real. I don't think the average New Zealander understands what grinding poverty is and that it actually does exist here. Mm. You know, I know when I go rural, we try to take treats and everything because we know it's not a given. You know, you can't just pop down the dairy. And then when you do pop down the dairy, it's four times the price of anywhere else.
2: Mm. Oh, and the cost to get to the dairy because, I, I mean, where I grew up, it was yeah. over an hour to get to the dairy. So, yeah, yeah
5: you don't just pop yeah. down there for a snickers. I mean, yeah, so, it's, you know, it's a culmination, this trust thing. And, you know, and I see it in some of the, um, and I won't name my eyes or anything, but I think, oh, have you got University mouldy in there telling you? Mm. You know, I, I personally don't agree with the moldy party I come off the moldy roll because I'm watching our you know our suicide stats go up our house nothing's changed it's all worse it's all worse like the last stats I was reading were like you know moldy men are killing themselves at a I um I think it was up in the 60s how our, our population's only 17 and and then we're bloody, these people are committing suicide at 60%. We're not going to last. Mm. It's, it's terrible. The stats are awful. Youth suicide is through the youth, um, roof. I mean, who are these people? And how did we get to a place where the government is pushing doom and gloom and making youth believe the world was over in 50 years and it's my fault?
2: Yeah, but that's the culture, isn't it? That is not it its the culture. And,
5: and I, I think that's one of aside from the tranny rubbish, (laughs) I think that is the most cruelest, cruelest thing, and it's evil to do this to youth, to have them with no hope.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, Maram has been sowing that seed for a while now, hasn't she?
5: Yes. You you reap what you sow. Yeah, and where there's no hope, there's no (laughs) fear. Mm. And I remember when these ram raids and that first started, Marie, it was just... These kids stole lollies, clothes and toys. I mean, I know they're kids and that's what I'd expect them to steal, (laughs) you know, and a few electronics, but, you know, the desperation's real and and we've got to stop, you know, prison's just like a holding pen, you know. And yes, there are some evil fellas that just need to be locked up and the keys thrown away. But that is by no means the majority of people in there. The majority of people in there are just mums, dads, aunties, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives. They're just us. And that for whatever reason, they've landed there. And then, so you make all the networks, you come out to nothing. I mean, what is there? And then you've got to pay, oh, you know, you've got to wait seven years for clean slate, and then that doesn't matter if it's a government department you're applying for. It's all bloody rubbish what this Māori Party and that are doing. Get in there and do some work. Yeah, well, as you said before, judge them by their deeds. Yes, by their deeds. And And it was, you know, I don't have to believe in your God and you don't have to believe in mine, but we do have to believe in humanity because mm. we're part of the human race. Yeah, okay. um, yeah, I, I, yeah. It just really annoys me that this is. It's you know, like I say, I don't care what they're in for, and, and women are, are treated worse. And then they've got men in there beating them up and raping them because they've got a special identity. And then you've got these tranny organisations going. They need binders. They need trans affirming care in jail. No, they don't. They need to see their children. They need to do programs. They need to be reconnected. They don't need to be brainwashed with indoctrination because a lot of the spirituality's gone. I'm even though I'm an urban Moldy and been brought up in the city all my life, I'm really lucky that I've been taken back to the country. I've been taken back to Mirai's. I can't even tell you how many Mirai's toilets I've cleaned, mate. Yeah. <laughs> because that's what you do. Yeah. So I've been very blessed in that way and that I can do this. But for other Māori, they don't have this exposure.
2: No. No, they don't. And that's that disconnect. And it's a community. It all comes back, whether you're Māori or non-Māori, it takes a a village to raise raise a child. Uh, And we have, our communities have been eroded. I spoke last week, um, I said in the show last week, I went down to speak at a Rotary meeting in Central Hawke's Bay. And if you are somebody who are in those uh, cultural, uh, social justice type communities, you, I mean, Things like a Rotary meeting would be your idea of a living hell, right? You know, a whole bunch of middle-aged, cis, white, m- mostly men, but the m- female m- women there now too. But these Rotarians are the pillars of their community and they're actually yes. getting out there. I mean, one of the things they were organising in the meeting was going for a visit to Magaroa to help, to see what they can do for help with programmes and, and oh, outreach. Yep. They're doing the mahi. Yes, they're at the coal face. They're, the, they're actually doing the work, and that all gets unseen because culturally, or uh, from a or a social justice, you know, from a social justice perspective. Yeah. Oh no, 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 you can't, you can't have that. And another example of this is a really good friend of mine It's in Minneapolis, and he has a business up there, he lives up there, and of course that's where George Floyd was killed. And when that happened, in the the, the square, the centre, of sort of the neighbourhood that it happened in, his business was on one side of the. Neighborhood and his home was on the other, and all the everything unfolded yes. in the middle. And the riots were horrific. I mean, he had to move his then 90-year-old mother out mm. of their house because he cared for her and go and stay in a hotel because it was not safe. I mean, they were looting things, burning things down. Yes. The community he lived in, the neighborhood was mostly so these are BLM protesters, right? Supposedly there for the minorities, going through like a plague of locusts crashing, burning, and destroying buildings that were mostly minority-owned. Yeah. And he said the thing that upset him the most, is he said, at the end of all of this and all their protest and the beating of their chests and COVID was in the middle of all of this, he yes. said it was them, it was the local community that were left, their Farno, and the local churches, small little churches all around Minnesota from these small little towns, these little local Christian parishes, we're bussing people in to help yeah. clean up.
5: Oh, uh, it doesn't matter where we are in the globe, but you can guarantee it's the Christians out there helping. Like mm. if, if we removed the Christians out of our community, we'd be lost.
2: Mm. We would be and, so.
5: And I'm, I'm not even a Christian, you know.
2: <laughs> but there's um, this is just it. see. Neither am I. But I've got a massive respect. Yes. Uh, because that's the thing. It's um, all of us have a moral compass, and it doesn't matter where your compass points. Yeah. You know, uh, we can all sort of work along. Ex- side each other, and I just see, and I love the, the morals that, that are instilled. That's yes. why my children are in Catholic school, for goodness
5: sake, you know. Well, um, yes, I, I uh, so, you know, like I look at my parents, and there were seven of us, Marie, and we're Catholic educated. So, you know, they worked all the hours God sent them to manage that mm. and and stuff. But, oh, yeah, no. The oh, and you power, and
2: your sister's so eloquent, die
5: <laughs> <laughs> She's definitely a wordsmith
2: <laughs> Speaking of wordsmith I, um, the latest blog from Manawahine Korero is talking about this children's rally which is coming up next week, uh, so uh, let's talk a little bit about that because if anyone is in the area, because uh, it's going to be in Wellington, it's Poneki,
5: yes? Yes, yes, yes. so tell us a bit more about that Okay, we're having a Voices for Children rally, like as you know, the um, We've been in the fight for quite some time, and we've been focused on women's rights, and so we've kind of pivoted off that because it's the children that are at most risk. Like I was just talking about SIFs and the latest rainbow guidelines that have come out. It's just a firm only, oh, you stub your tongue, mouth because you're trans, you know, <laughs> basically. So um, I'm very pleased that let kids be kids. And Parents Against Gender, the two groups that have just sprung up since Posey Parker's rally, KJK's rally, they're going to have an attendance. We've got some speakers lined up. I've asked Hannah Tamaki if she'll come and speak. Yep, and I think um, Karina's
2: heading down in that direction yes, as
5: well. Yes, Karina. And we're having it at Parliament, whether they're sitting or not. Now, the reason, is very basic reasons for why we're having it at Parliament. And it's because Parliament comes with fencing and security. I have had enough of being spat on and yelled at and jostled for standing up for women's rights. But the children, our children are not okay. It's only in the last little bit, Marie, I've started thinking about the kids that don't trans, but are taught all this crap. How do you unteach the formative years? Yeah.
2: Yeah.
5: So how, you know, like children that are enough in themselves and in their environment that they don't need the love bombing and they don't get sucked in, they're still being taught women have a penis and men have babies and that humans can change sex, and that they can be born in the wrong body. How do they unlearn this as as they become adults and stuff? Like, I'm finding it very, very damaging. And and so there's lots of horrible things happening for our children in our schools. And New Zealand being New Zealand, we don't have a blanket how to deal with this. Like, Mangawai Head School has none of it. Mm-hmm. It's all been the whole sexual thing's being kicked out. Like right. Where MWK stand, Kōrero stand, is take it back to sex education and not sexuality education. I really don't think children need to know if you're a lesbian. I don't know what value that brings myself personally or gay, you know. And I'm talking five year olds. It's absolutely abhorrent what they're doing to children. Well, and so it's, it's because because it's making
2: kids apply labels to things. And kids, that's the thing. They don't. They just see another child in front of them. They don't see a label. Yes.
5: They don't care if they've got one leg or one eye or they're in pink or blue or their skin's brown. Kids just see a kid. You, you know, and and. They're taking children's childhood off them, so it's it's more than time. It's over time that we stood up for children in this manner. We don't have an international speaker to give us the attention we need. We've just been putting it out on Facebook, 31st Halloween, All Hallows' Eve, at Parliament at 11.30. Come and have your say or come and listen to some great speakers we're doing a ticketing process, and that was suggested by the police after the last rally. So, and it's they're free tickets; you just get the tickets, and all that is for is for security and numbers. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, and
5: that so, sounds great. We're having a Voices for Children rally where we have to have fencing, we have to have security, and we have to have police.
2: Mm-hmm. And the other again, so just I've spoken to just recently a few uh senior teachers and principals and even ones that have been on boards just around the traps and they know that you know I have this job and they've asked me about some of this gender stuff and one of the thing that things that has come back quite clearly to me from them is they're in the position now from an education perspective like a lot of medical people are you know you're not you know this is the guidelines you must adhere to the guidelines you must completely affirm and you cannot deviate from this and if you deviate from this that could have repercussions with you with the teaching council and so they are even if they don't agree with it or they have concerns like there are behaviors they're walking on eggshells where so for example you've got a child who's deciding it wants to have um, excessive attention seeking behavior And it wants to be a furry at school. And I mean, why any kid wants to run around and wee and poo outside and lick its balls when it's bored, I don't know. But that's what they want to do. And these principals and these teachers can't do anything about it other than affirm that child and tell everybody else in the school body that they have to do the same. And they, you know, and they're seeing the disruption and the, And and their hands are tied. I feel sorry for those educators. And then you've got the ones that think it's fabulous, darling. But, you know, I just worry. I really do. And it's hopefully when the dust settles in November and they all kind of figure out, who, you know, everything gets a bit landed and they know who's going to drop where, from an education perspective, hopefully some of these things can get rolled back.
5: Oh, I hope so because, you know, people should not be at fear of losing their livelihood because they're not affirming this. We've already had a teacher lose his job for not affirming. We've got is a Melon Bay primary, I believe it is, that is um, compulsory pronouns. You know, there isn't a blanket thing across it. Um, listening to one of the women from Parents Against Gender, Karen, OMG, Is how to get the gender out of your school in a thousand steps. Like, the work involved is immense. It is immense, and Let Kids Be Kids is another group that I've come across, and they're trying to get the resources and everything together to strategise, to, um, you know, come on, let's pull it out. And MWK, we've just started a petition. You know, to wait, we have to wait for Parliament to get back to being Parliament, but it's for a full inquiry. We want a full inquiry into all of this because of the funding, as we know, is through the roof. But so it's voices for children. Come and speak because what we're going to have speakers, then we're going to have open floor, and then we're going to have a half hour if dads and men want to speak. We are keeping it as women first because we have lost the most. Mm.
2: Mm.
5: There's we Women have lost everything. So, you know, when my moko and I go to the pool's, or a public toilet, men can be in there by law, just because they said they're trans. They don't even have to shave. They don't have to do anything. They just got to rock up and go, I'm a lady now. And it is so legally. And so you know it's but come and come and listen, come and talk, get, you know, get your butts to Parliament on the 31st. It's going to be a really good informative rally event. It's not a protest. It might be a protest, I don't know, but it's really important people start hitting the streets and waking up and speaking up for children because, you know, we had the childhood we had with all that glorious Kiwi summers and just the Kiwi way because of our grandparents and their parents and so on. Yeah. They fought for us to have that. I think every adult, whether you have children or not, needs to start speaking up for children. The kids are not okay yeah. They, well, they are being groomed.
2: They call it a culture war for a reason because I think this yeah. is the war of our generation. So yeah, um, you did right. We need to stand up. Now one last little thing and this is going to seem a bit weird for our listeners but um, our die needs to find somewhere to, a, a new home. So if you're anywhere, if you are listening to this and you are someone who has got uh, a place between carpety or Libin or anywhere in between, uh, give us a yell 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio because yeah, our die our needs a home. We've got We've got to keep this uh, good lady with a roof over uh-huh. her head. So, thank and trying to find anywhere out there is a nightmare. Uh-huh. But you know, we've got some pretty good networks out there. Dai, and as far as you're concerned, you're an RCR Tonga, so we've got to keep you, yeah. keep you housed.
5: uh thank you. Yes, it's been incredible. Like I've never troubled finding a house before, but I've sent you know a dozen emails and received no replies. Mm. It's incredible. And then just watching the um, rentals, like even in the last month, they've gone up because I only need a two bedroom. No, we'll, we'll see,
2: we'll see what we can Thank do. You for and, that. Yeah, no, no worries at all. Yeah, inbox at realitycheck.radio in twenty fifty-seven, as I said, is the text number. And also too that wahini sub substack, the one thing I noticed at the bottom of that latest post is all those resources that you have there mm-hmm. of all those different organizations and all of their websites. So if you are looking for more information around this gender information in schools, especially and education, um, there's that's a great resource list there for you. As always, diet's it's amazing. I love our catch-ups. Thank you,
5: Thank you I love Marie. our
2: catch-ups. We will continue always to stay in touch because there's never there's never nothing to talk about. That's the best thing.
5: Oh, correct. There's always something that bugs me with the government, irrelevant of who's in. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, well, don't disappear, everybody. More great content still here to come with Reality Check Radio. You're up. It's always refreshing to talk to Di and gain another perspective that's never shared elsewhere, a torrent of truth from start to finish. If you have any feedback on my interview with Di, please send me your thoughts to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text us to 2057.
4: Would you like to be a part of reviving honest media? At RCR, we're on a mission to do just that. We report on critical, censored stories and hold those in positions of power to account. As Paul Brennan says, it's a good mission. Now there's an easy way to support RCR and at the same time receive some amazing benefits. Our Foundation Membership Club is here. As a member, you'll enjoy a host of exclusive benefits, including a daily bite-sized news digest, a backstage pass to RCR, and discounted merchandise. Find out all you need to know about our Foundation Membership now at www.realitycheck.radio.
0: Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. The following interview contains topics that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. If you would like to contact us in regards to any of our content, please email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio
2: welcome back you are with counterculture i am marie here on rcr and with great pleasure i introduce you to ellie marie diamond from wahine toa rising survivor leader and co-founder good morning ellie how are you good morning i'm well thank you yeah no it's so great to finally chat to you ellie was introduced to me by a Denise Ritchie. Many of you may remember the interview I did with Denise about a month or so ago from Stop Demand, a really powerful interview. If you haven't had a chance to hear that interview, all you need to do is go to realitycheck.radio, click replace, then go to my page and you will find that interview there. Wahine toa rising. Denise alluded to it, but explain to our listeners what it is and what space you're working in currently.
1: It was co-founded in 2019, so just before COVID. We founded it because we saw a really strong need to have an organisation in New Zealand that supported women and young people, um, and look, everybody, but I say I, I will refer to women and young people because it is majority of women who need support, to either exit the sex trade or to support them while they're in the sex trade. I think the only organisation in New Zealand that does a lot of that work is NZPC, and Mm -hmm. we just felt that we needed to have another voice in there.
2: Yeah, because, I mean, NZPC worked, I mean, 20 years since the decriminalisation of prostitution. I mean, gosh, where does that go? But what I hadn't realised when I spoke to Denise was the differences between legalisation and decriminalisation and in a way decriminalisation as far as the sex industry is concerned literally created the wild west a lot of these people especially these vulnerable women and children are actually in a way almost more at risk post decriminalisation is that what you're seeing with the work you do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We absolutely believe that that, that women need to be decriminalised. That is not an argument. But full decriminalisation legalises everybody. So legalises the pimps, the people who are profiting from women and young people, everyone. So in some ways we still have a modern day slavery and it's the the vulnerable ones that are most at risk women and children of color um, women and children who are living in poverty women and children and homelessness women and children who are leaving domestic violent relationships women and children who've experienced sexual abuse these are the the women and children who are falling through the cracks and that's incredibly heartbreaking
2: Hmm. What are some of the calls that you get in terms of help? So, how does that manifest? What does that look like when someone reaches out to you through Rahini Tordorising?
1: So it's tough. So we are a fairly new organisation, as I said, two thousand nineteen. So we do not work on any. We have no funding whatsoever. We work purely from a volunteer and heart of service perspective. And um, we are all survivors. This is why we do what we do. Um, but when calls come in, it's it's heartbreaking and these are women who and some men too these are people who are who are desperate they're they're desperate to get out they don't want to be doing this anymore they need support with housing and um some need support with uh, drug and alcohol rehabilitation and counseling and they need a bubble of love around them and it's it's hard um when we don't have the resources to be able to do that and we need to be able to refer them to other people. Mm-hmm. But the scary thing is I have tried to find organizations that we can we can refer women to for these sorts of help. And they say to me, I'm really sorry, but um that's sex work and we're not funded for that. We're only funded for sexual violence. Um we're not funded for sex work.
2: It sounds a little bit like, I, I mean, I know you're not based in New Zealand, but there's a commercial for TSB that was on several years ago and it was a taxi driver and someone saying, I want to go to such and such street. And they're like, no, we only do avenues and lanes. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, a victim is a victim is a victim. Yeah. Surely if, they, if, they, if they've gotten to that point where they've reached out for help, you'd want to be able to help them. Yeah. Is, and I mean, is that pr- in New Zealand where you're striking this, or are you striking this everywhere? This
1: is a new it, look, it's everywhere, mm. it's everywhere at the moment. It, it's so frustrating because all I'm coming up across is sex work is the work, there's no funding for that, it's not sexual violence. Mm. Oh, it's sometimes I, do, I can't get my head around it, like I. Mm. I'm saying these women are coming to us, they want to get out, they feel like they're being raped every day, they feel like they're still living this um, sexual abuse that they've been raised with or that they've lived through. They need help. They want help. Where do we get them help? We can't. There's no help. They say, we went to NVIPC and they said to us, it's okay, look, it's like a job. You, You just need to go take a break, have a bit of a holiday, and then come back.
2: Well, that's not really helpful, is it? When we refer to that acronym, we're referring to the Prostitutes Collective, correct? Yep. Are they living in this paradigm of a happy hooker, Julia Roberts, pretty woman type scenario? Yep. Is that what they believe yep. they've created?
1: I, I don't know what they believe I've created. I, I can't get my head around it. Like, seriously. I don't know. Have you seen? They have a handbook. They have a handbook that they give women who go to them. I should send you a copy. Have you seen it? No oh, I I need to send you a copy, you'll be flabbergasted. You'll you'll be completely flabbergasted. Things in there like um, how to give head jobs without gagging and choking, how to to take anal without being injured. If you're in an emergency or you're in trouble, put a whistle around your neck and blow it in their ear and scream fire because if you scream anything else, nobody's going to come. And this is what we're calling work. I don't know any other job like this, but okay. Well,
2: and, that, and that's the thing with decriminalisation, isn't it? Because if it were legalised, it would fall under not only all the taxation elements, but it would fall under all the health and safety elements as well. But decriminalisation, it slips through all of those regulatory cracks, yeah.
1: does it not? I think it. I think it is. Look, I'm not very political. I'm I'm a survivor, so I'm mm. um I, I purely come from a place of not wanting to see anybody else go through what I went through but I'm pretty sure it already is under health and safety uh-huh. um, but from my understanding and don't quote me from but from my understanding there's only been a couple of health inspections in Brussels and what do they do I, I mean I don't understand do they go in there and it, it would be more I guess their health and safety would be are you using condoms are you using dental dams I'm I'm blown away by the amount of funding that the New Zealand prostitutes collective gets because I'm like Can we not use that funding for support services to prevent Mm. women being killed in prostitution and prevent women being abused in prostitution and prevent trafficking that supposedly Mm. we don't have, but we know we do? Yeah.
2: So, I mean, I've written down here abusive relationships. I mean, there would be a lot of women who have been raised in abusive family and whanau relationships where when they transition to sex work, same shit, different day. Yeah. So how do you and break that cycle?
1: Definitely not by full decriminalisation. Mm. There has to be accountability. Men need to have accountability. So if you're saying to men, do not hate your women, do not rape them, do not abuse them, but you know what, if you go pay for it, then that's okay. So we're sending a lot of mixed messages really To men, and I think to myself, it's no wonder that New Zealand's domestic violence rates are at at an all-time high, and you know, and strangulation, and and all these other other things that are happening. And there's been, you know, you can Google the newspapers and articles, and um, you can Google now prostitution in New Zealand, and there's lots of articles now about you know women and strip clubs who are not being heard and who are being abused. Recently, there was a, a ex-member of parliament that was running a um, high-end escort agency and had a lot of women who were complaining about the work safety and um, how they were being treated. There were the homeless women who were in the hotels because they had nowhere to go and gangs were coming in and raping them and trying to prostitute them in exchange for drugs and other things. So There's heaps of stories out there at the moment. Um, The girls that were trafficked recently, you know, up north. There's so many stories out there, and yet New Zealand Prostitutes Collective and the government are saying, yes, full decriminalisation is working.
2: And also, where you barely see these stories in the media, it's crazy because it's not politically expedient for them to talk about it I mean what do I know that Denise was saying she's seen a shift in the time that she's been doing her work she said once upon a time ago she'd put out a press release she said I don't do it very often I put out a press release it would get picked up she said I'd do a series of interviews and I'd get my message out there and then you know we and keep doing the work she said this time around with the anniversary she said Crickets you could have driven a truck through the space left because there was nothing shaking. She said, and that's been quite a shift, which is concerning because it's almost monkey see, monkey do, isn't it? If you don't see see it and you don't hear about it, therefore you don't need to speak about it because it's not happening. But that's certainly not the case from what you're saying.
1: That's not. It's because, and I'm sure Denise can speak to this too, there's children being pimped by, you know, families in Manukau City. There was a whole, um, they tried to call for a review because of the children that were there. You know, we have an organisation in New Zealand called ECPAT Alert New Zealand, so E-C-P-A-T, ECPAT Alert New Zealand. They have records and records and um, stats and figures of their child sex trafficking that is currently happening in New Zealand. And I think to myself, what, what's, what's going on? And then I think to myself, is it because of are coloured? If we had a, you know, a little, uh, a nine-year-old, a nine year old white girl on the side of the street who looked like she came from quite an affluent, you know, community who was being pimped out, there'd be an uproar. We'd see it all over the media, the news, it would be everywhere.
2: Well, see, I'm actually wondering w- whether it would only because they probably in some perverted crazy way would think that that was okay and the only reason i say that is that have you seen the foray in recent weeks here about a new children's book that has been released targeted at eight to eleven year olds called what is sex no oh right you send me the p you send me the um the pc guide i will send you a link for this it is literally like that guide it's what is sex it is a picture book for eight to eleven year olds explaining everything from how to, to do fingering and, and manual what? stimulation. Yes, anal sex, how to use condoms, oh. plus pictures, everything. And their attitude is, is like, no, no, this is an important educational guide. So this book is to go into school libraries.
1: What are they doing? Well, and this is the thing. What We're ruining really a- our children for...
2: Oh. <laughs> So it's that this is, it's this, I mean, is this groovy? Because for me, by normalizing their sex acts to children that young. So I'm not a prude. I'm not, I'm not saying that no. adults can't have healthy, fulfilled sex yeah. lives, but eight to 11 year olds. Yeah. To me, that's a line that's been crossed.
1: It's definitely been crossed. And we want our children to grow up with healthy attitudes to have healthy sex lives we don't want to be raising our children in a time where you know where sex is the violence of sex is normal like i don't want my child to to grow up thinking sexual violence is normal and that's a part of a healthy sex life because that's almost like what that book is doing right mm. it's saying like sexual violence is i feel oh. uh. <laughs>
2: It is a real concern. Like it's part of the reason I took this job on, and why my show is on culture, is because I've seen a dismantling, yeah, of all these structures and pillars of Western civilization. And one of those is the pillar of the family. As a survivor, destruction and degradation of the family, particularly absent fathers or men. I mean, we know that the majority of sexual abuse occurs within homes where. The victim knows the perpetrator, so how do we regain that? And if and by dismantling those structures, all you're doing, I would have thought, would be exacerbating this problem, not fixing it.
1: Yeah, yeah I agree. It, it, exactly what we're doing. We're almost giving permission for it to happen. We're we're enabling the behaviour. We're encouraging the behaviour. We're, we're giving permission for to, for people to be. Predators and and violent, you know, um, violent men and sexual deviants and pedophiles and we're giving them a golden ticket.
2: Mm. I asked Denise about this porn. What influence do you think porn and the accessibility to porn makes today? Oh,
1: it's crazy. So porn, like I, you know, I haven't been um, in the sex industry for a while, but even back then, we you know, we used to have those seedy little video stores, you know, underneath the massage parlours. So I used to work at, at Lashree down there on Fort Lane. Um, and there was a little video store that was downstairs. And I remember we used to have to go down there to assist the men while they were watching porn to get them off. So, you know, mm. it, was, it was disgusting. Um, you'd walk in there and that was it was like this musty, disgusting smell of, you know, stale cum and sweat and BO and, you know, it was gross. But and now porn is really accessible. So back then men would come into the parlour and they would be like, they would expect you to be the porn star that was on the video. That's what they wanted. That was their fantasy. Back then porn, even though it was bad, was pretty mild compared to what porn is now. Like it's... Mm. It's only gotten worse as the years have gone by, and now it's more accessible. Anyone can get a hold of it. Kids can get a hold of it. You just, you know, you can type something into Google, and it'll just come up. I think one of the worst search engines is Bing. You type something in there, and it's just porn. Porn comes up. Crazy. It's just too accessible. But now boys, young boys, think that that's what women want. That's not what women want. No, <laughs> women do not want that. <laughs> But that's normal now Mm. from a male perspective.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I worry about our boys. Mm -hmm. I've got two teenage boys. And I worry that our boys are being emasculated, that many don't have strong male role models. And as you said, things like porn are incredibly accessible and that is where they're taking their learnings from. How important do you think having good, strong, solid men uh in fixing this problem
1: it's really 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 important and i think i would love to see more men coming on board and standing up for women and children and saying no this this behavior this is not who we are you know we we're better than this this is not um this is not healthy and Because the more men that come forward, I guess, then they become the role role models. Over here we have, and I would recommend talking to him as well, over here um, we have an amazing young man. His name is Daniel Principe, so P-R-I-N-C-I-P-E, I I think it is. I can send you his contact details. Mm -hmm. Um, He is incredible. He's a young man who was affected by pornography and he now – um, travels from school to school, talking to young boys and girls about pornography, um healthy the sexual attraction, consent, especially, healthy relationships. and he's doing some amazing work around educating our kids around what is healthy and acceptable and what is not so healthy and acceptable. Mm-hmm. That's what we need,
2: more mm-hmm. of them. Because the difficulty with decriminalisation, of course, is it reduces a woman or a young man in sex work to nothing short of a product, an yeah. item.
1: Yeah, a slave. So in Northern Territory, when I went up, I went up to Northern Territory to speak because they were adopting full decrim because everyone follows the New Zealand model. Everyone thinks, the New, all across the world, they think the New Zealand model is the perfect model. And I went to Northern Territory and I was sitting in the room while they were having the community hearing. Nothing was being reported, but they were just having a conversation amongst themselves. And they went, you know what, we've already decided that we're adopting full g That's not the argument. What we need to work out now is how do we advertise the product without offending anybody?
2: Oh, gosh.
1: Women are not products.
2: No. We are no. not.
1: We're human beings. We are not a product. Many of
2: the guests that I have are really involved in, um, well, for to use the other side's derogatory term, the TERFs, and they are literally wanting to stand up for biological women. And I've never been particularly feminist in my 50-plus plus years. Yeah. However, what I have certainly seen is I think women are under attack more than we've ever been in our lives. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Is there a downward filter for what's happening in the space in regards to the gender warfare that's going on to what's happening in the space in terms of sex work and the sex industry?
1: Yeah, I I just think that as women we're becoming, and I don't want to say powerless or voiceless because I am far from powerless and voiceless, but society is definitely trying to push us down i feel like almost back to the old days you know when women used to walk so many steps behind their men and they'd be at home cooking and cleaning and raising kids while men were at work and women were obedient and you know and submissive and i feel like in some ways society is trying to push us back to those days i don't think so we we can't the only way we stop that is by women uniting together and starting to make a stand, and I think that that's, that's all we can do.
2: See, that's the trouble with that traditional relationship, isn't it, is that a lot of women are actually quite happy to do that.
1: I'm, you know, I'm happy to cook and clean because, yeah. you know, I I'd probably cook better than – I mean, I'm not married anymore. That, that probably says a lot, but anyway. But I'm happy to cook and clean, but don't think that that's all I'm worth.
2: Exactly, yeah.
1: Like, I I have a lot more to give to the world than just cooking and cleaning.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, like, Northern Territory, because so for people that have a, I should have actually said this sooner, you are actually based in Australia. In the Northern Territory, I mean, that is a very isolated rural state. Yeah. With one major city, which, you know, really is quite provincial. Uh, Darwin, I think, has still got very much a provincial mindset, doesn't it? Yeah. It also has a very, very high Aboriginal population. How do they feel about all of this? Because I know surely the experiences you've seen with Maori and Pacifica women in New Zealand, the alarm bells that will be ringing for those populations in the Northern Territory.
1: So, in the Northern Territory, there's and you can read about it. You can actually look it up. There is a group of people up there who live in the long grasses, and you would be gobsmacked. that It's like a pocket of a third world country in Australia. So they they make their own shelters, no running water, no toilets. Um, They're called the long grass people. So that's where they live in the long grasses. Um, And then they have the long grass women. The long grass women call themselves resource gatherers. what What happens is men come along and they pick them up and they take them for sex And then they pay them with alcohol or cigarettes, clothing for the children, food, whatever resources they need to take home to their family. And then they go home to their family after they get dropped off and their husbands take them or their partners. And then they're given to the other men in the village to be raped. And and this is their life. I I just, I'm gobsmacked. I, I don't know. I feel so powerless. Like every day I feel so powerless because there's so few people speaking up for for our most vulnerable for our most vulnerable communities. There's so few people speaking up. And I yeah, I it breaks my heart every day and I don't know. Um, the
2: sad part about that though is I guess there is a sector of society that would say, Oh yes, but that's their choice. That by altering or changing that, that is disrupting their cultural norm that yeah. you'd be racist. You can't do that.
1: It's racist I've... not to do anything. That's what I I reckon. It's racist and discriminatory to stand by and do nothing. And you know, it, it's that whole thing, you know, if I can't see it, then it's not happening. Mm. Don't mm. show me I don't want to look at it because then if I don't I can't see it, it's not there. Mm. And it reminds me of when I was a child growing up, you know, and I was I was raised in what I call a cult. It was, they were called the Worldwide Church of God. And there was a lot of sexual abuse um happening within the within the church. And it often reminds me of that. You know, I remember telling them, you know, this man is doing this to me, and they'll be like, oh, that's not happening, you must be encouraging it or it's in your head or you're making things up or, you know, it would always get swept under the carpet. No no one wanted to know about it. It was, it was too hard to face or they didn't believe it um, or whatever it was, but no one wanted to look at it and just sweep it under the carpet, sweep it under the carpet. It's almost like, we're, yeah, I don't know, going backwards.
2: Mm. Really and whenever you get organised groups like that, I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, Not all men are predators, but if you have got a predator, and I had done an interview just recently with a guy who deals in cluster B personality disorders and how it only takes one person with one of those disorders. So something like narcissistic personality disorder or psychopathy or histrionic personality disorder or disassociative personality disorder to actually come into a space, a group or an organization and completely Turn it on, a, on its head. So they are the obviously the charismatic cult leader, or the one that will suck people into the orbit and convince them that it's all going to be okay. And with that power comes abuse. And I think that is time and immemorial, I'm, um,
1: isn't it? Yeah, that's definitely my ex partner to a T. Yeah, mm. and he's I'm uh, um, very very violent, but um, yeah, it's I get really lost because I just don't know. We just need more people, more Mm. people on board, more conversation. I love that you're having a conversation because it means when people have conversations, it means people care. And when people care, it means we have some hope. You know, if no one's having conversations, then that's when, you know, I guess all hope is lost. Um,
2: Yeah. So then if people are hearing this conversation and they're thinking, you know what, I know someone that needs help or I have been in this situation and I've been looking for a way to reach out and help. How do they do that?
1: They, they ring, they get in contact. So jump on our Facebook page or, um, and just send flick me a message. It's only me who gets the messages. Um, so flick me a message, and then I give them a call straight away to have a chat with them. And it could be someone who just needs to ring and chat at midnight, and that's okay. And it could be midnight my time, and that's okay. That's I, I'm there to listen people in and out of the sex trade and I say everybody I mean when I started this organization uh, you know the pro-lobby and a lot of other people I wasn't very political I had no idea um, about politics all I knew was that um, I had led a pretty horrific life and ended up in the sex trade in in Auckland, and um, I did not want Uh, another person to ever have to go through the pain that I went through. Um, And the pain that I still go through now at 50 years of age, like I've been out of the sex trade for 30 years but not out of the sex trade. So my mind, my emotions, my mental health is still very much still there. Um, And I don't want anyone else to have to go through that, that pain and that hurt. We're not a Christian organization. We're not a um, a rad feminist organization. We we're that um, we have a collective of survivors. One is a man, a gay man. We are all inclusive, not not exclusive. Um, everyone has a story, like everybody, even though it's your support full decriminalisation. Both women still have a story. Um, and that's what we're here for, is to listen and, and be there for them and give them support and surround them in love and regardless of where they are on that on that um yeah structure.
2: So, mm. yeah. Well Ellie, this has been a real privilege to chat to you. As she said, uh, look out Wahini Toa Rising, look out for the Facebook page if you want to reach out or if you have any if you need a link sent to them. Um you're gonna send me some stuff
1: as well. Yes. So the book's called Stepping Forward, so yeah, you'll be an eye opener.
2: Mm, so we'll get on to that. Uh, if you have any, we conversation
1: then... for another day.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, oh gosh, I know Denise and I are going to set a date to talk about porn at some point. I get all the fun topics on this show. I tell you, um, <laughs> you keep listening here with Garda Culture. Still more great information, news. Marty, of course, is still yet to come uh, here on RCR. As I mentioned earlier, I wanted to replay this interview to help provide context for my next guest, Katrina. Her story can be found on the Wahini Toa Rising website and it will be great to hear her experiences firsthand. Welcome back and good morning to Counter Gold. You're here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. Joining me now is a young woman called Katrina. You may have seen Katrina's story if you had visited the Wahini Toa Rising site. She has a survivor story there and I wanted to explore a little bit more into that. Uh, Good morning, Katrina. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. So your story is quite an incredible one. So share that. Give the listeners a bit of an idea about what's gone on.
6: Uh, So my story is based on the perspective of myself, obviously, as a child who was at the effects of the sex industry. So my mum obviously was exposed to a lot of things in the sex trade and was a part of the sex trade, lost custody of me when I was a very, very young baby. So my story talks a lot about my perspective and the problems that I faced and the challenges that I faced and the trauma that I faced mainly in my upbringing and my teenage years and especially my young adulthood as an effect of the lack of support that she had uh, when she had me.
2: So that's obviously one of the elements they, they don't talk about. They don't talk about the collateral damage, as it were, of the other people in lives. So how did that manifest for you? You were taken off your mum when you were very small and you went to an adoptive family?
6: Um, that's exactly right. So I was uh, given care of, I suppose, by uh, fam- so still family members. So my auntie and uncle raised me. They did a fantastic job. I will forever be grateful that they were willing to take me in and uh, look after me and, and you know give me a life. However, I faced a lot of challenges and a lot of trauma from the perspective of not being able to make those key connections as a baby with, with my actual birth mother. So I was taken, I believe, around the six-month mark. So still very, very young and still right in that sort of uh time frame where, you know, very young babies connect with their parents. They um, you know, have those attachments that are created through hormones and, and you know, being cuddled and being fed and, and having all those sorts of things. So because I missed that that key time of having that interaction and and having those connections made, it actually caused a lot of anxiety and and a lot of sort of challenging behaviours, I suppose, for me and in my childhood, my teenage years
2: and my young adult life as well. Mm, So how did those challenging behaviours manifest? What did they look like?
6: Um, So it manifested in things like very, very high anxiety. So I was very shut down as a child. I had very sort of uh, poor social skills and and a very poor idea of what what love and relationships should be like. So I found myself being very drawn to the idea of being loved by the opposite sex as a very, very young child, a lot earlier than what I should have. And, of course, that manifested in my older years into getting into a domestic violence relationship, thinking that getting married at 18 years old would, would solve all of my attachment problems and, and would solve all of the issues of, of not you know, knowing what love was and things like that, you know, when that relationship fell apart, it it manifested into using my sexuality and using my body to get what I needed from other people, whether it was love or money or items or help or support or, or, you know, even just that feeling to be wanted.
2: Do you feel that there was almost a cruel irony there in a way in terms of a a cycle of behaviour and in your case, unwittingly so, you know, I mean, obviously you hadn't been raised by your birth mother, but you were falling into a traps, traps of behaviour that potentially had been emulated by her met so many years previous.
6: Oh, absolutely. It it definitely uh, replicated the cycle. And, and although it showed in, in in different ways, it was still very similar and consistent with, as I said, using my body and using my sexuality in a way that is very similar to what happens in the sex trade, you know, whether it's to gain love or gain respect or or gain even just the feeling of being wanted. I mean, it it was quite severe for a long time there where I didn't have any self-worth and I didn't have any self-confidence. And I believed that if I used, you know, my body in that way, that that would constitute being loved and wanted and all it ended up doing was causing more trauma.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you've come through the other side and you've had that very, very early marriage yeah. What was the turning point for you to actually start steering the ship in the right direction?
6: For me, it, it took a lot of years of therapy. It took a lot of years of of working on my self worth and and learning about those triggers and and fundamentally learning that a lot of the behaviours that I exhibited in my young adult years, especially linked back to what I lost as a baby. So linking those behaviours to that lack of attachment and that feeling of abandonment, I think, was probably the biggest turning point in my life. And like I said, it was it was through a lot of therapy and a lot of self-discovery and things like that, that I was able to go, OK, you know, these behaviours now are still consistent with me feeling like I'm abandoned and feeling like I'm unwanted and not feeling like I've got the connections that I need.
2: So uh, You know, and that's the difficulty, isn't it? You know, it is such a journey so you've come through the other side and you uh you go through the marriage but then you've actually come out from an educational and professional standpoint the level of growth that you have there now tell us a little bit more about that because i also find that actually quite inspiring
6: um so i am a um i'm a counselor i have wanted to be a counselor since i was 10 years old i can remember sitting in my adoptive parents' house with a table and chair solving every problem from finances to what kind of dinner are we going to have tonight. So it's always been a passion of mine to help other people and to, I guess, be that support for people that may not necessarily have that support. So I am still a counsellor and I very much enjoy it. And I find that I guess a lot of the experiences that I went through in my life come in really, really handy from a perspective of relatedness and things like that. I really enjoy it because I I feel like, I guess, if my entire life and every amount of trauma and every experience, good or negative that I've had in my life, can make a difference to one or two people, then it makes it worthwhile.
2: Mm. From the work that you do now with the counselling and as an adult, societally, the sex trade has almost been sort of sanitised in the minds of many people, particularly with decriminalisation. But that is not the fact. What has changed and what hasn't changed from when your mum was working in the sex trade?
6: I personally think from a counsellor's perspective and, and from somebody who has been at the effect of the sex trade, I think it's really, really important that we focus on the level of support that needs to be Uh, that needs to be provided to people. I think, you know, and I've I've said it time and time again, we're not talking about people who are sex workers, who enjoy what they do, who are happy with what they do, who are, you know, got the self-confidence and that's the path they choose. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who feel like they're stuck, like they have no choice, like they have to do it to get by or they have to do it to have money or, you know, we're talking about people that could potentially have so much trauma going on, and and feel stuck and trapped in what they're doing with no way out. That's what we're targeting to support here. We're looking at how do we ensure that every person who is vulnerable, who is traumatized, who is stuck has access to support and has access to somebody to feel back on, to fall back on, sorry, and has access to knowing that there's someone there to catch them, if that makes sense.
1: Mm.
2: And it is about uh, having those wraparound services too for those, but also those vulnerable children, you know. I think, yeah, I mean, uh, it's sort of a childhood sexual assault or sexual trauma is still actually very, very high on the scale of being something that triggers negative effects for a child long term so how Absolutely. do you break Absolutely. that cycle yeah so what sort of work is sort of um wahine Toa rising been doing to help break that cycle and give support to those women and families that need it
6: yeah so Wahini Taurising rising is a non-profit organization they are looking really at that level of support you know looking at, at that awareness and that knowledge and i think you know, ninety percent of anything and or everything that we do, that we that we try and um, that we try and get out there, comes down to uh, that knowledge and that awareness of what's going on. It's having people not just be aware that there is available support and that there is people that are willing to be a voice for those that may not have a voice, but it's also about being aware of the effects of what can happen down the generational line.
3: Mm -hmm. Um,
6: But that's something that I'm very passionate about. about. I stand for the children that are only very young or the children that are at the effects of what's happening or the children that are not even born yet. You know, I stand for that example of what can happen when a mother doesn't have support.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and if someone's listening to this and they're hearing, they're thinking, oh, I, I might know a mum that's in that situation or a woman that's in that situation. What are some really simple practical things that they can do as a friend or a neighbor or a colleague or or the like to help support mm-hmm. these women through?
6: I think as with anything, as with any any time that that someone may have a friend or family member going going a, around something or going through something, I think it's about, You know, allowing them to know that they've got support, checking in with them, you know, finding out if there's anything that they might need from something as simple as a trip to the shops to pick up groceries or a a homemade meal or even just a listening ear. You know, it's about looking at those different support avenues and going, hey, you know, I'm not sure if there's something that you might be interested in, but there is support available for you if you need it.
2: Mm. Absolutely. So if people are wanting to find out a little bit more about wahine we where is the best place for them to go?
6: Uh, so the best place would be to go to either the website or the Facebook page. There is, you know, the means of ways to contact somebody to have a chat to somebody uh, through both of those avenues. There's a lot of information there as well. So I think that's, yeah, that, that would be the best way to do it.
2: Oh, that's awesome. Hey, look, it's been an utter joy to talk to you this morning. Thank you very much for giving us your time. And don't disappear more great content here yet to come on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. This morning has certainly been a morning of uncovering the realities of life that no one wants to discuss. And I thank Katrina for sharing her very personal journey with us. If you have any comments about what you've heard from either Ali Marie or Katrina this morning, email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. Before we catch up with Marty, time to jump back to 1988. The album was Rattle and Hum and known for singles such as I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, Angel of Harlem and Pride. But it's this single that's my favourite. It's the final track on the album and it's dedicated to Bono's wife, Ali. It's All I Want Is You, by you too, here on Reality Check Radio.
4: Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now.
2: Welcome back to Counterculture Culture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie and Marty Gibson joins me now, as always, for Media Matters. Another week, more things happening in the media, long weekend.
3: Yeah, how are you doing, Marie? I'm yeah, no. wow. Well.
2: What'd you do for the long weekend?
3: Well, I headed back to Gisborne for a fiftieth birthday on Saturday night. Happy birthday, Adrian! It was a good party and uh, nice to catch up. Nice to be in a big crowd of people where I knew most of them.
2: Yeah, so. a good chunk of them. Yeah, it's it is always. Reminiscent when you head home. I'm probably going to have to head back in a few weeks as well. There have been a few things unfold in my family over the last week, which I'll fill you in later. Well, we're uh, at that age, aren't we? we It was
3: sad that the road toll was four uh, people killed over the weekend. And I certainly reflected on the causes of that as I was driving back and someone overtook me at the end of a straight where there was a car obviously coming towards us. And I slammed on my brakes and they pulled in front of me not more than 20 metres ahead of me to avoid having a head-on collision. And we are probably about four hour, uh, 400 metres from a passing lane, which was just around the corner. Um, and I always think, you know, I always wonder what people do when they get back from a, ju- a journey when they're driving like that. Mm. they probably go inside, sit down, watch some crap TV, and not realising they're rolling the dice on their life with the prize being that five minutes of watching crap TV, if that.
2: Mm. It is a funny old thing, you know, I mean, I remember you and I took several car journeys back in the day when I was traveling a lot and, you know, I was often a, what was a, a Uber busky before Uber was a thing and <laughs> uh, we, you know, we talked a lot on those journeys and one of the things that I remember a lot, I mean, gosh, I used to do, I think one year I did something like 40,000 Ks mm. uh, in the car alone and that's without the air travel at the job I used to have. It always amazed me. The risks that people took on the road, Mm. it stunned me. I'm naturally a very, very cautious driver, so I always found that really quite stark.
3: I tell you what, if if you want to think about risk, when we first moved here, I just got a job, any job, and ended up on a road fixing crew for a civil engineering company. Found myself sometimes at three o'clock in the morning on a night shift driving a truck with nine tons or something of hot mix in the back, at at, uh, which is 180 degrees Celsius, reflecting that if I fell asleep and crashed into a bank, it would be joining me in the cab. So that was better than a cup of coffee for keeping keeping my mind on the job. But it's quite funny. The other thought I had was, you know, they've got those signs, drinking, don't drive. It occurred to me that that's all backwards. It should be drive and don't drink, because the problem is that once people start drinking, they stop making good decisions. And once you get to those two beers or three beers, it's easy to have another two. and uh...
2: Fatigue. You know, they have done some things on fatigue, but I, having been someone that's driven long hours and long days, uh, fatigue for me was my always my enemy. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: It's really worth uh, keeping in mind what's at stake. When I first started work out of uni, I got a job for the world's biggest chemical company and they put me through a whole lot of driver training. It's on Pukeko racetrack and defensive drive and it's it's meant, well, I've never had a car crash. Mm. It's really, it made my driving a whole lot better.
2: I remember you and I had a conversation going through the Waiaweka Gorge on defensive <laughs> driving and you <laughs> actually pointed out how my cornering wasn't as optimal as it needed to be and actually I took that on and I changed the way I drove after that and it was even better so there you go god that was oh. 25 years ago And answer
3: happy see, to have helped
2: I know see listeners <laughs> we've known each other a very long time yeah. I had a good look at the papers over the weekend so I had a couple of things that happened is one is that because see we had an extra day off here in the bay because it was anniversary weekend so I had Friday as well and I actually took a whole day off on oh, Friday. Oh, good for you. Oh, I know, I don't do it very often. Uh, well, I say that, but Mr. Marie bought me the papers because he completely forgot that it was Friday and thought it was Saturday. And one of the things that I actually chopped out, and I have had it sitting in my little cubby here for about four or five days, was Josie Bacani, uh, how to overhaul the public sector. And this was sort of a precursor. There's been lots in the paper, particularly over the weekend, now that Hopkins has conceded and they're waiting for the dust to settle. They've all got time to ruminate on what yeah. went wrong and what might happen. And she started uh, some of the rumination with a very good opinion piece around how to overhaul the public sector. And I just wanted to read a couple of passages from this, which sort of kicks off into the rest of it. She says, Wellington is out of step with the rest of the country it is a Green Mayor and a Green MP in the inner city, and while the rest of the country went the other way. The city has a dilapidated water system, brutal roads and malfunctioning public transport. Yet the people who voted for all this are the same people telling the rest of New Zealand how things should be run. If an incoming government is to achieve better performance, it will need to devolve more away from Wellington to local communities and provide as close to people and their service. I bet that if it was the Sally's Housing for human or EWI authorities given cash for social housing, they could roll out more, better and faster than Wellington has. Finally, get rid of the gibberish. Chronic inability to be precise about the objective of government initiatives has real-world effects beyond its linguistic crimes. As George Orwell famously observed, jargon is usually deployed to hide either weak thinking or disguise the sinister exercise of power. Now, that was in um, The Post,
3: I actually read that. I think someone linked it. I posted it. Maybe you. It was me. I
2: I posted it because I just... a blinding
3: flash of clarity from... uh, Josie. Josie. And you know what I thought when I was reading it was, you know, maybe it's time that uh, electorates, that elect MPs should have policies from the party that they voted for more. So it would be great to see Wellington Central have a wealth tax the, the way the Greens envisaged them. I think they would turn around their voting pretty quick, but... Yeah, just that out of step. That's what you want. You're voting for a party that's essentially communist and you're running the country that's voting for the opposite. It it Mm. summed it up a lot, didn't it?
2: Oh, totally summed it up. Totally Mm. summed it up. And it was nice to see a commentator actually call it because then – for the remainder of the papers, there was lots of um, hand-wringing about the potential of job losses, and I saw in, I think it was Q&A with John Campbell, and and they were all worried about Luxon's attempt to strip. what's going to happen with all these public mm. sector jobs and how important they were and how they must stay. Uh, and so they were already sort of panicking.
3: Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, you know, jobs. I got up here, I wanted a job, and I just phoned a labor hire organization said, I don't care what I do. Because, you know, when you writer, everything's grist to your mill. So I never lose with that. And it was, you know, one of the funnest jobs I've had in many ways. And it wouldn't hurt a lot of those people to do that. Mm. You know, because, yeah. you, you, you know, I had this little uh, Cockney guy as my boss. And it made everything sound like I was in a Guy Ritchie movie. Said, all right, Molly, we're going to split up the gang. You take the truck, go out and get some hot mix. <laughs> it was like being in a uh, a squadron going to, to war in some ways on the potholes.
2: It's important, I think, to, to get those connections. And you mentioned it last week, you know, about the potential of where all these public servants might go. And a lot of them, you see, I mean, journalism has dropped. I mean, half of journalists have disappeared out of media organisations with even more threats to come, with both NZME and uh, MediaWorks now being yep. uh, in the in the papers with the financial audit being done, and they're not, essentially, they're not solvent. So there's going to be even more. But where did the, all those journalists wash out to? Well, they washed out into the into the government space. So there's yeah. going to be a lot of hacks looking for something to
3: hack. Well, you know, I mean, as I said, they should uh, drive a truck for a bit. And uh, meet some other people. I mean, I, I got co-opted quite a few times as as a support person to sit in on um, disciplinary hearings, which was, you know, kind of a little bit of a conflict of interest and made me a bit unsettled. But the, you know, my company said they were okay with me doing it. You, you know, you know that word hand wringing. The, the hand wringing about people losing their jobs is a big part of our difficulty in productivity. If you contrast New Zealand with Germany, in Germany, it's really easy to fire people. There's not the stigma to being fired that there is in, in New Zealand. If you've ever tried to fire someone, it's a nightmare. And it, it's the origin of that handbrake on the product, on New Zealand's productivity that, that you can hear when you talk to, say, a builder and you say, how are you getting on? And they say, oh man, I'm just so snowed and flat out. And you say, well, why don't you hire someone and they get this visceral sort of like they've been punched in the gut and they just say, "Oh God, no, I can't be bothered with that." Mm-hmm. And it, it's because if you get someone who starts making noises about taking some sort of case to the employment tribunal, they're going to give them ten grand just because they figure, "Well, where there's smoke, there's fire," and you can afford it, and and so on. And so it stops people giving people a go, mm, and it, it does. um. In the same way as the minimum wage stops good people being paid what they're worth because you're paying your least productive workers what they're not worth. So your best workers kind of start getting pissed off and slow down and your worst workers have got no incentive to improve. It's all of these unintended consequences of labour laws.
2: Yeah, and then, of course, the restructuring process is, a, is so vastly more onerous than what it was back in the day. I know when I worked in media, uh, so the five years I was with that company, all restructures I went yeah. through.
3: all well, redundancy it's, it's rounds. the only way you can f- fire people mm. without getting a claim against you. Yeah. And so there's all of this paperwork that goes with that. And, oh, man, I mean, I've had periods where we've been kept up for six months, buy those things. And you're walking on eggshells egg and it's ghastly and it is such a suck on productivity.
2: Oh, it is. It's a massive. And it's difficult because, yeah, as you said, it it doesn't promote productivity. It also doesn't promote growth in smaller businesses because they yep. just do not have the time and energy to sort of move into that. And having been there, done that, oh, I don't miss it. I used to look after the HR and I do not miss it at all. And it's even worse now. mm-hmm so yeah, I don't know how they're going to improve that. Let's start with uh the one paper that had the least amount in it, shall we? Which for me was The Herald on Sunday. It was uh it was very slim pickings. It was it was the diet program. So I only literally plugged out uh three opinion pieces and the beehive diaries. The rest of it was just not really worth the paper that it was on Saturday. Well, is you also you sent me
3: it. a photo of Andrea Vance reassuring me that she'd reverted to full Darth Vader and angry face. You I know, know. Thanks for keeping me up to date because I couldn't buy the uh, Herald on Sunday. It was sold out everywhere I went.
2: But she went back to full Darth Vance.
3: Which full. is her prerogative. You know, it's it's woman's body. It's her right to choose, Marie. Let's not forget that. If she wants a very severe fringe, that's up to her But yeah, I wish they'd warn me before I have to open the paper and get the fright.
2: It has been interesting. The theme we were talking about it before we got started. The theme, I def- there's two big themes, uh, and we'll dive into them. One a treaty, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the other one was in terms of the sort of how where did where did labour go wrong, and in one way or another, a lot of the commentators actually pointed to it without realising they were pointing to it, and in my opinion. What has absolutely tripped Labor up is the fact that they have they went woke, and they went woke with bells on under Dear Leader. Mm. She was the the high priestess, the patron saint. Of the, yeah, the patron saint of woke. And for those that don't understand critical social justice. From a political perspective, they talk about identitarianism or identity politics, whereas it is about the person or the thing or the label and not about the policy. At the heart of it, it's all about power. Mm. So it always lends itself to politics. So, of course, we talk about the student Marxist politicians with their credit cards. Well, Ardern took it one step further Because she took that identitarianism and those classic Marxist principles, which, let's face it, in one form or another, the Labour Party is founded on. Yeah. And she expanded it with that sort of postmodern veneer of anything goes. There is no absolute clarity. So whatever you want something to be or you say something, it is, therefore it is.
3: Yeah, that's where malinformation comes from. It's true, but it's bad. And I mean, I've said before, so many, if not all of the problems that we're facing as a nation now, have their tap roots in lies, whether it's in uh, John Money's fraudulent research, pedi- pedophilic research with uh, the twins, and and of course, John Money is, is regarded as as the intellectual core of, what's the name of the group that go around telling kids that maybe they're trapped in the wrong body? Inside out. Yeah, inside out. It's all based on Foucault and his terribly pedophilic tendencies with 10-year-old boys in graveyards in Algeria. And that's never mentioned. You know, you're talking earlier about how everything's about power. That assumption that all hierarchies are based on power uh, ignores the fact that generally, they're not. They're based on competence. I reject the premise of her election, which was that the only reason that uh Mark's a student politician with no life experience outside wrapping fish and chips or political brown nosing had never been prime minister was sexism rather than the fact that she was going to make a souse ear of it. Mm. And you know, when you've got you're placing no value on competence And you uh, place no value on the idea that there's uh, some sort of logos or ultimate truth or God. You know, I'm probably not far further along from you in my religiosity. I'm not particularly religious, but Jordan Peterson said when he was asked if he was if he believed in God, I live as if I do. And that's kind of where I've arrived at. I think if people talk too much about God and what God wants, they're in danger of committing idolatry by um, worshipping their brain and the thoughts they've got. Yeah, that's maybe getting a bit abstract uh, for a discussion about the papers.
2: In terms of hero on Sunday, Chenille doesn't quite really realise how MMP works. So Chenille was rather concerned at how there was vote splitting. As you know, I've discussed vote splitting before. But he figured out the vote splitting between Labour and Greens and this is why there was carnage in Auckland without actually realising that there's vote splitting on both sides, Pete. You know, so just as the vote on the left is split between the Greens and Labour is the same way that the vote is split between National Act and New Zealand First on the other
3: side. You could hear his will to authoritarianism slipping off a a little bit there, couldn't you? The mask from that slipping off. He was just like, you know, we need a centrally organised coordination uh, to get well. I think I, I don't
2: more. expect either party to put their hand up to expect, accept responsibility. Well, of course not, because that's not how they work. Uh, but I hope that they've both learned a lesson from the result. Labour and Greens need to start cutting deals with each other to avoid competing in the same electorates. And they also need to be open and transparent about doing so. Well, <laughs> oh,
1: good luck with that, love. Mm.
2: But then I think it actually got worse for Shane, to be fair. Oh, bless mm-hmm. Shane. Shane DePoe. So he wasn't so worried about the vote splitting. He was just worried about lo- Labour loyalists not actually coming out to vote at all. I,
3: I think he was living in a parallel universe, actually, because he um, he said... Uh,
2: that Those New Zealanders had voted for Jacinda Ardern's vision.
3: Yeah, and she'd delivered on her vision.
2: Yeah, she delivered 77,000 kids out of poverty, 200,000 more homes built nationwide, over 300,000 people into work, and 20,000 lives saved um, during COVID. Shane, where are the receipts, darling? Because I haven't seen those receipts.
3: Yeah, and if there are 20,000 lives saved, why is the Ministry of Health sitting on data that shows the differences in health outcomes between the vaxxed and the unvaxxed? Yeah, where's the 16% increase in excess deaths come from?
2: Gosh, yeah. His sort of idea was the fact that they'd lost vision. They'd lost their positivity in their vision. The problem with Labour Party, it's running on visionless, dull managerialism. That is what National runs on too, except they do them as businessmen in blue suits. Mm. Yeah. following one, which I know potentially normally you wouldn't read, which was Jessica and Nathan in Zeitgeist and Spy, because I think that's a section that potentially only just glance over,
3: <laughs>
2: the chuckle, chuckle, chuckle.
3: Well, I'm, I'm chuckling because like, I didn't read it even when you sent it. To like, me. See? I knew you wouldn't. I've read this stuff before. Yeah,
2: it's I like, know. And you uh, look, to be fair, usually I wouldn't either. However, it was interesting because she's an influencer. An influencer. An inver- inverted commas. An influencer. The headline is, influencers have a moral duty. And... She's obviously been looking at what's going on in the Middle East and people's reactions to that, reactions to what's happening. She's saying, for me personally, it's been eye-opening for so many reasons. The spreading of misinformation and cognitive dissonance has been particularly hard to navigate, but she doesn't actually say what the misinformation or cognitive you. dissonance is. Yeah. We're very opaque at what side of the fence one is sitting on. While social media has revolutionized information sharing and consumption, it's undeniable and it's also facilitated the spread of misinformation and disinformation. Okay, all right, we know you're on the Kitty Kate's Kool-Aid. Algorithms can create eco chambers. True where users are primarily exposed to content that aligns with their existing beliefs. True. We also have seen how social media platforms can be exploited for manipulation and propaganda. And then she goes on to uh, Russia, 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 and uh, Trump bits and bobs, and Pizzagate and all the rest of it. What she doesn't actually talk about with this is the fact that that in itself, in terms of the manipulation within the United States, what they don't talk about is the role of Cambridge Analytica, which is...
3: Mm, the nudge units.
2: Yeah. That what these current governments have done now is they've taken the lessons learned by Donald Trump in 2016 and what he did, and they've gone and applied it themselves. Right? Right. social media was a hotbed of misinformation, conspiracy theories. She's on a roll. Surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic, false claims about the virus's origin, effectiveness in vaccines and government measures spread faster than the virus itself, hindering public health efforts and causing confusion. I find myself conflicted because although it can be a powerful and defiant act of allyship, it's also dangerous if a person sharing information is perhaps out of their depth.
3: Yeah, maybe have a listen to Layton Smith's podcast interview with Asim Malhotra. That's a person who's not out of his depth, and he's kind of uh, confirming a lot of the things that you're labelling as misinformation, yeah. my dear.
2: That was uh, the assessment there, and there is certainly, um, in terms of the Sunday Herald, there is lots of information that is rolling around and lots of panicking about uh, jobs and who's going to keep jobs and who's not going to keep jobs. Um, Before we jump over to the treaty, because I do want to cover that, and you and I both looked at that, the Saturday Herald, which was vastly better than the Sunday one. Okay, Bruce Cottrell, why pay more, get out and hustle, which speaks to what you just talked earlier before about Mm. productivity. Yeah. It was very solution-focused. It's kind of like, okay, you know, I know we're just settling down this last of this election, who ha where are we going to from here? It was a really interesting breakdown of wages and the direct effect that both wages has in driving the economy and, more importantly, inflation up. So the Labour government will have you believe that their greatest success is that they have improved wages for workers, and they have. In 2017, yep. the minimum wage was 15.75 an hour. It is now 22.70 an hour. That's a, a, a jump of just shy of seven bucks, or 44% in six years.
3: Yeah. One thing I'd put in, in there is, say you hire someone who's 18 and has got no work experience. If you have to pay them 22.70 an hour rather than 15 bucks an hour, maybe they're living at home, right? Maybe their expenses aren't that great compared to someone who's got a family you have to give them a boring, easily quantifiable job. You can't have them watch you do something more complex. You can't take the time to teach them so they can be worth twenty two seventy an hour. And so, yeah, there's always those uh, unintended consequences. If not only you have to do that, but it's impossible to stop doing it if it turns out that they're no good, you've got all these, as I said, tradesmen limping along, rushed off their feet but won't hire someone. I've spoken to builders like that. I've spoken to people who work for building companies who've got all of these immigrant workers coming on. They find out that they're paid more than them and they're useless, but they have to be paid more because that's a condition of being able to get them in. That's what happens when you're have people deciding these things who have never employed someone and had to live or die by whether they can do the job. And, mm-hmm. and so it's easy for them to think, well, you know, for James Shaw to think, oh, well, you know, if 25% of the most productive New Zealanders leave, we've got plenty more people. It, it, that, that's the whole idea that you raised earlier. They see all hierarchies as uh, a measure of power rather than competency. Even in a, in a manual job, someone who is a really good worker, they can do three or four times more than someone who's not. And as I said, if you've got to pay them more or less the same, because you you have to pay someone what they're not worth, so you can't afford to pay someone what, what they are worth, that has a chilling effect on productivity.
2: Well, it does. And especially when, and this was something that he touched Driving up the minimum wage can be a good thing, but it needs to correspond with an increase in productivity. Otherwise, you end up paying more for the same results. If anything, our productivity per person has gone down, not up. When COVID came along, we lost a lot of our workforce as people here in the working holiday visas left the country. By some reports, as many as 200,000 workers. As a result we had the COVID-initiator worker shortage. Workers are like any other economic factor. Scarcity leads to cost increases. With the COVID-enforced absence of workers, wages went up as employees fought to attract staff they needed to stay in business. Meantime, in parallel to all of this, the government went on a hiring spree before and after COVID, often paying above the market to attract the workers they needed. It's been a perfect storm. Drive up the minimum wage, lose a large number of workers overseas and exacerbate the scarcity by increasing the number of government workers. The results? A massive wage bubble. And this is why they're all shitting themselves now in Wellington because you've had all of these people with overinflated salaries and overinflated egos all of a sudden having to enter into a realistic job market.
3: Yeah. They're not going to like that. It's comment. It's like a bushfire, easy to start, almost impossible to stop. Uh, yeah, because those increases are locked in, and in order to get back to wages that are proportionate to ability, they're going to have to go up even more. And so we're, yeah, we've got the potential to see continued inflation just on the back of that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, nothing else alone. The best way to break the cycle is to grow the economy. Do that, we need to find new and innovative ways to do things as well as doing more of what we already do. Unquestionably our strongest suit is agriculture. There are two ways to grow that business. We need to find new customers who will buy what we already make but we also need to develop new stuff that we can sell to our existing customers. Growing our trading with both existing and new product lines more rapidly than we've done in the past but it it'll be an important ingredient of our recovery over the next five years. Now, what he's, I think, saying in a veiled way is that all this horseshit that particularly the Greens bring to the party uh, within governments, especially around climate and not so much environment, but climate, especially mm. the things that you've been talking about in terms of net zero and Agenda 30 to 2030, all that crap's got to go, because All that is doing is hampering and adding layers of compliance and expense on the sectors that we need to grow, on the sectors that are going to get us out of the economic poo in the first place.
3: Into sectors, and I'll just keep saying this because it annoys the crap out of me, onto sectors that were exempt from the Paris Climate Accord because food production was. But poor old James Shaw had to go overseas and try and make New Zealand a leader in all of this. And so he couldn't do that because we already had really high hydroelectric power. So our power was already green. So he put agriculture on the block so we could make a really impressive sacrifice to the climate fairies that was going to make him feel good as he flapped his jowls talking about it.
2: And this comes back to that ideology that I mentioned earlier, because that is virtue signaling, classic virtue signaling 101. Whenever you're in that environment and you're steeped in this ideology. And, and you're a, a narcissist. And you're a narcissist. You're always trying to out pious each other. You know, it's, you, you who is the most saintly for the cause?
3: Yeah, and James- which is a fraudulent BA.
2: How long do you reckon James will and, last?
3: Oh they they sort of use him like an invisibility cloak. He's there to not frighten the the tealy ladies in the leafy suburbs who want to be kind. But you know, the other thing that I've, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, the $2 billion deal that Chippy victoriously unveiled with BlackRock, who's a major WEF uh, sponsor, just saying, the $2 billion is basically what it will cost New Zealand per year to have agriculture included when it didn't need to be in our Paris Accord commitments. We're going to borrow money to pay that off and then we're going to borrow money off BlackRock to give us power, and they're going to jack the prices up and build stuff that's only designed to last as long as till they need to flick it to make their medium-term profits. So the fact that we haven't been able to have this as an open discussion, largely in the last six years, or however long it's been since the Public Interest Journalism Fund, because it specifically precluded any mm. dis- such discussion. Without wanting to um, jump the gun, in Tracy Watkins' article about uh, the treaty referendum, she talks about the trigger for uneasy race relations being the treaty settlements. Now, we tore ourselves to bits over treaty settlements, Mm. and uh, so far, total treaty settlements are only $2.24 billion. And I tend to go with the higher estimates from some government reports about what a Paris Accord commitments could cost us this decade, and that's about seventy billion. So the treaty settlements, the potential uh, cost of appeasing the climate fairies, is over thirty times the total treaty settlements. If I were a Maori who was told that they could only afford to pay me cents on the dollar for often manifest injustices and and theft, uh, I'd be a bit peeved about that, and especially given that. There's very little discussion about it, let alone sharing, and I think this should happen with all science-based things, they sh- there should be a uh, commitment by people in the public sector to say, well, what's the point of falsifiability? Mm. When is this theory that we're doing all this on falsified? When's it falsified that you know we're asserting that the vaccine's safe and effective, or that we're warming the planet through CO2 emissions, even though CO2 emissions normally follow temperature rises by about 800 years. So it's hard to argue that it's causative. Mm. Mm. God, I'm a bit ranty today.
2: When the premise that you start from is false, the outcome is always going to be antithetical to what it is that you're trying to achieve. You
3: know, malinformation.
2: The- Mal-in- it's
3: malinformation. It doesn't. It comes back to that Jacinda Ardern quote when she was asked what she disliked most about uh, her term in Parliament, she said the parliamentary protests. And when she said, oh, there are just so many people there that that were there on the basis of misinformation that just felt wrong, <laughs> like that's phelium for you. Mm, tis. For me, as I've said, I'd love to be wrong. And it doesn't make me feel better when there's all of this talk about misinformation, but never any specifics about, well, what is the misinformation, and why is it wrong, and what is correct, and what's the data that supports your theory that it's correct? Well, misinformation
2: and disinformation is the new racist. In a conversation. It's only there and designed to shut the conversation down. It's like a full stop or an exclamation mark, depending on which one you want to use. Misinformation, if you've been kind and full stop and disinformation, it's like, shut up, we don't agree with you, and we believe that you were doing this deliberately. So stop it, stop it.
3: Mm, yeah, do you want to get onto the treaty now?
2: yeah, and and it's sort of twofold because it does actually dive into the it does dive into, the cultural stuff that I have, there we go, get to the right page. because it, it covers across, so both Sunday Star Times and The Herald on Saturday. And the reason why I think there is a combination between the two, we have seen signalling all week from Te and Martima Davidson, oh man, that mask has come off, has a lot. Mm-hmm. Um The implication of violence, if... Yeah. Act gets their treaty referendum across the line. Now, I don't believe a referendum is the right way to go,
3: personally, either. I I would, uh, I'm right with you on that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, because all you're going to do is create a whole Brexit voice um, Mm. and you're just going to divide the nation even further. So I have no qualms on a referendum, but I do believe a conversation needs to take place. Now, what was interesting about this, it was a twofold thing after our Elizabeth Rada conversation we had last week is this, of course, Taikura Ferris and Hannah Maipi-Clark, these two new young MPs, and they're both products of the Kohanga Reo,
3: Julius Malema? Of,
2: yeah, full um, immersion system. And in the Sunday Star Times, there was uh, an article by uh, Sir Peer Mayron, Kohanga Reo generation celebrates a child born of prophecy This article was really fascinating because I saw this massive disconnect in the article and the disconnect was between the ideology of some of the people that have been brought forward, i.e. as we've seen with Ferris when that sort of mask comes off in terms of indoctrination, versus the fundamentals around a process in a system like the Oranga Rail system and trying to sort of correlate that they are a product of that system when actually it's like, well, are they? Are they yeah, a product of that is system? It the,
3: is it the colonisation that dare not speak its name, Marxism?
2: Yes. Thank you.
3: Yeah. Because, I mean, there's little to argue about in terms of the Kohongarau system as described, you know, tying more with the family, <laughs> thinking about the person as an individual Great, and, and you know, equally with Tracy Watkins' uh, article, and in the meantime, the new government will still have to find ways to address the terrible statistics of Maori deprivation and poverty, and poor outcomes in just about every measure, including health and education. As I've said before, every terrible stat essentially comes from the poor education performance. If you took all the racially earmarked funding away, is it possible that Maori outcomes would get worse? Mm. I think they'd get better. Mm.
2: This is the thing, the kurakau papa method reaches deep into the home, right, says, it demands equally of the family, community and school to raise a child to their full potential. In this way, the school raises the family too, he said, that I do not um, disagree with at all. And I think it's what they're doing is they're raising these young people, they're raising these two new MPs up has been coming from the system it's like no they came from that system and then they were indo- indoctrinated somewhere along the line now wrote a note in the margin is P. Clark going to be an influencer or is she going to be influenced because she is only 21 years old so incredibly impressionable and what were the forces behind her they talked about Nanaia Mahuta's uh, invisibility in the electorate and that the fact that she cited that the reason she wasn't there uh, for the people in, in Waikato is because of her responsibilities and whereas this young woman was everywhere, Te Pāti Māori were everywhere they campaigned hard on the ground they worked hard to win that seat but I do wonder whether or not they're going to hold her up like some sort of Māori Greta Thunberg and I hope beyond hope they're not going to she's going to turn into this sort of Mari woke darling
3: yeah and, well, it's the and she's gonna come a
2: cropper i really yeah. do worry because she seems to be a very lovely young woman and and i really do hope i worry i worry well, that I mean, you think get about yourself as
3: 21 get 21 good okay. lord you know you're just in the middle of that messianic phase where you see everything is very simple and in black and white and there's the irony that introduction of very young people like that into politics actually uh, reinforces the old guard because they do, as you say, mentor them. And during that developmental phase, rather than going away learning from the world, they just end up parroting what, you know.
2: And we all know who's going to be mentoring her into Party Marty. Yeah. Tamahiri himself. I mean, I think in her, he sees this mighty Joan of Arc. I really, really do hope for this girl. I really do hope for this girl that she is not manipulated.
3: Oh, she's going uh, to be manipulated. Oh, I mean, just... you know, for me, yeah, Tamihiri uh, and James Shaw's, oh, there might be violence is disgusting. I mean, I'm someone who is disgusted by violence. It's the least imaginative solution. Sometimes it's necessary and you should be, Capable of volcanic violence if it's needed, but to and that's such a common uh, tactic on the left. Oh, you know, you know, we may not be able to control. I remember there was a Petrobras meeting up the coast, and one of the limp-handed little lefties said, "Oh, we might not be able to guarantee the safety of the people if they come and talk to us." It's like, and also, it needs to be asked. You know, when you're talking about violence, are you thinking about? these armed gangs that successive governments have failed to address as you shock troops? Because it's not you, is it? You're a little soft-handed, flabby, overfed no. folks. No. It's always for someone else to be G'd into doing the violence.
2: Yeah, exactly. So onto the treaty, onto the premise that actually starts with a lie. Mm. Now, uh, what I mean by that, to justify that, is a discussion that we had, and I'm going to reiterate again, if you haven't done it yet, people, you need to listen to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Go to the replays page, his interview with Professor Elizabeth Rata, which was last week. Groundbreaking. It's interesting, actually, how they left her out of that article in terms of the kōra Papa and kōhangareo system, because she was integral in that. Yeah. And she not a Whisper was mentioned.
3: Well, you know, it's it's projection as well, isn't it? It's like, hey, if we give up this advance that we've made, we're going to be overrun, they're going to treat us like crap. And no, I think most New Zealanders would love to see Maori get out of the terrible state they're in, in terms of imprisonment rates, in terms of educational failure, in terms of poor health outcomes. But Telling people that everything bad that happens to them is someone else's fault ain't going to cut it. Mm. And, you know, it was interesting, and I know we're jumping around a bit, in Audrey Young's sighing series of assertions.
2: That's very very diplomatic of you.
3: Yeah. In fact, in all of these articles about the treaty, Mm. not one of them deigned to mention that one of the conditions of receiving public interest journalism fund money was that you had to take the approach that the treaty intended for co-governance, that New Zealand was a hopelessly racist country that disadvantaged Maori at a systemic level. So none of them actually floated the idea that, hey, maybe if we just allow that discussion to take place, it'll take some of the pressure out of it. So, I mean, I, I agree there shouldn't be a referendum on the treaty in this current state because so many people in the absence of public debate, have taken to talking between, behind their hands. And the reason that I do openly talk about this is I think it's important to do so. And I go on to uh, Maori news Facebook groups and discuss, you know what I think with Maori, who are often, you know, pretty angry about it. but I'd rather do that than go into some echo chamber, and get agreed with. Yeah. There's because there's also, so many straw man arguments. And, are, you know, one of which is, Pākehā, I want to see us fail. They hate the idea that we're doing better. No! And there's
2: also a conflation between tenaranga Ranga which is Māori sovereignty, and taking up critical social justice ideas and ideology. And they're actually sort of trying to conflate the two together. And they are worlds apart.
3: Well, the other conflation is that it appears to me from my examination of the issue, and I, I'm no expert, I haven't studied it at, at university level or anything, so it appears that the tino Rangatiratanga aspect of the treaty referred to individuals.
2: Yeah. And, and so, so
3: the debate that's never sort of had is Māori leaders have taken it to mean Māori as a species, as a school of kahawai. And, you know, you saw John Tamahiri, and I've said this before, saying, you know, we're going to govern these people. We're going to manage them. As if the treaty was between Maori as a race rather than Maori individuals who, Mm. as I've said, you know, the tutua, the commoners, previously didn't have any rights of ownership. Suddenly Mm. they could have their own land, which is one of the most powerful aspects of capitalism, isn't it? The right to own something.
2: And this is where the critical social justice comes in, because as you said, it treats them as a school of kawaii, but Māori have never been that. They have always been sovereign individuals who come to collect it collectively together in their own family and hapū groups, and the whole concept of iwi is a Western concept. It's not a Māori, iwi doesn't exist in Māori.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I had uh, a story scotched um, that I wrote during uh, Chris Finlayson's term as treaty negotiator where it was a sub-tribe, uh, more than a hapu, was objecting because Nati Perot had subsumed their claim and their claim was essentially against the government and Nati Perot. So the people who had perpetuated the injustice uh, then got to claim compensation for it. And so, yeah, it was very complicated complex situation and you know the fact that the musket wars had to be ignored as they've been subsequently ignored in the new curriculum despite killing more new zealanders in world War one and two combined yeah the the drive to have a simple solution is fits with a political agenda but seldom with the agendas of uh, actual natural justice
2: one of the things so in this Audrey Young piece, so what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out what is going to happen because all three parties, New Zealand First National and ACT, agree that something needs to happen in this space. How that takes place, you don't know. ACT has put a hard line in the sand claiming that they, it was a bottom line for them, a referendum on the treaty. He's David's walked that back a little bit uh, mm-hmm. over the last sort of few weeks, but those are the sorts of hard lines that we're talking about here. If you listen to the Elizabeth Rata interview, this all started around these principles, right, of the treaty, which linguistic sleight of hand from Geoffrey Palmer in order to get some state-owned enterprise legislation across the line by placing a phrase into the legislation with absolutely no foundation on it, and said, oh, don't worry about it, this will keep everybody happy. But it was completely undefined. So what has then happened since that time is they've now left it up to a series of activists and activist judges and lobbyists within that space to create this definition of what these articles are. And Winston Peters, is one of the few, was around at the time and remembers when all this happens. Mm. Winston Peters, New Zealand First Party, signed a confidence and supply agreement with Labour in late 2005. One of its conditions was to get Labour's limited support for the Members' Bill deleting references to the principles of the treaty from all legislation. Unfortunately, Parliament appears to have purged from its database all debate and submissions on that bill in 2006. In the name of Doug Wallerton. its website says ominously in red, terminated not available records from previous database it had has deleted debate on a similar bill a few months earlier in the name of act leader rodney hyde it has however retained the record of a debate on an even earlier bill in peter's name shortly before the 2005 election to delete references to the principles of the treaty from law that bill was defeated by 63 to 51 National Act and United Future supporters p- supported Peter's bill and it was opposed by Labour, Greens, the progressives and Te Party Māori. Yeah. So this horseshit has been going on for a long time.
3: Yeah, there is that uh, technique you see in other parts of the world where any, if you encounter any opposition, you just go crazy and threaten civil disobedience and disturbance and violence. It blocks the debate. As you know, I zoom out on this. I was fascinated to see a um, an episode of Mick Huckabee's podcast, his former governor of Arkansas and presidential candidate. I always really liked him. And he was talking about New Zealand and he's talking about Australia. And he talked about the defeat of the voice as being a defeat of these corporate interests that were governed by the WEF or, or represented by them and The Voice was really about corporatizing ownership of 80% of Australia.
2: Yes, because it's held its it as, as Aboriginal rights. land, yeah.
3: Yeah. As I always say, you know, women thought the Rockefellers and the CIA were doing them a big favour sponsoring feminism, and now these same psychos are uh, really concerned about Indigenous rights, but they never quite get around to being outraged about the terrible uh, performance of the education system. There's always that desire just to have them as victims without actually auditing, say, in Australia, the $60 billion a year they get Mm. for effectiveness.
2: Luxon's got an interesting conundrum on his hands, right? So he's got now this collection of Māori activists in the form of Te Pāti Māori and Marama Davidson too on the other side with the Greens. One of the things that they all share as ideologues is they're very, very vocal. And they will yap, 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 yap yell, 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 yell yap, 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 to get what they want. And Luxon is going to have to, as I said, grow his punami balls in order to put his hand up and say stop. It will be interesting to see whether or not he brings Peters in alone solely for the only purpose to actually use him, Shane Jones and Casey Costello as a way to quell this noise that will get created by them. Because, of course, the easy thing to do with all these ideologues is just to pretend they don't exist or go along with it just to shut them up, which is the wrong thing to do.
3: It's the wrong park to be talking about this with Māori, too. You know, I mean, Luxon isn't a Māori's Pākehā, and neither is David Seymour, although, you know, he does have some Māori papa. Um, Shane
2: Jones certainly is a really good one in this yeah, space. I, I believe. should do a
3: working group with Alan Duff in charge of it. And of but- course,
2: you know, as that Audrey Young article cites, Peters has been in tackling this, and I think he brought this up too in the interview we did with Peter Williams. He's been tackling this at a parliamentary level for the thick end of nearly twenty years.
3: Yeah. You know, the thing that's always lost in this, which always makes me sad, because I do love Māori. I love hanging out with them. And once you've ex- experienced Tanga, you know, on a marae and, and just in homes, and, and once you've sat around with one of your dead friends with everyone mourning them in the sitting room, There's something that they bring to white folks that led, I think, an early English visitor to New Zealand said Māori are making a better Englishman. And in the same way, I think I've seen Māori in parkour settings really impressed by how we can all be together without violence or conflict. I think the aim ultimately should be to become more than the sum of our parts. As I said, you know, if, if Māori fail in the education system, if you looked at that in a neighbourhood level and considered that somewhat akin to a hapu, you could organise groups of families to intermingle with some of the families who are struggling in terms of food, budgeting, reading to kids, just saying, well, look, if, if we don't help you get out of this, it's going to bite us. So let's... It's pulled together a bit. But as I said, government's grown between us like cancer and uh, set us against each other. That's more important than having any referendum on the treaty.
2: Mm. And it is the failures of those systems in order to prevent adverse outcomes. I mean, that's what we want. I mean, you've spoken to it in education. And the last article I'll bring up, because we both read it, in the same edition, actually, as that treaty article,
3: Teens prison story shows system is wrong. I gather that's what we're reading, right? Yeah,
2: that is the oh, one sure. that we're reading. And and if you've been listening to the entire show, you'll know that I've just spoken to Di Landy. We this. love your
3: Di Landy.
2: I do love Di. She <laughs> is just an absolute treasure. And I hadn't read this, unfortunately, when i spoke spoken to Di, and I read this after talking to her. So it's by Tara Shasky. uh, Saturday, uh, Weekend Herald, Teen Prison Story Show System is Wrong. Hopefully it is digital and online. I've got it in hard copy here. It just highlights everything that Di has just spoken about here on the show Mm. in terms of the failures of not only the system, follows this uh, young man, Blake Hollands Apiara, who has been jailed twice in the past 15 months, first for breaking the jaw of a police officer and then for stabbing a boy. So we're not saying that this wee lad needs needs to have some time, right, Uh, some time away. But what it does show is how once he got into the system, how the system has done absolutely nothing for him. Nothing to turn this young man around. Holland's apiata began somewhat on the back foot. He was monitored for methadone withdrawal as a baby, and it's still unknown of the the impact, if any, it had on his development. Well, I I think we can join the dots there court documents state his first three years of life were dysfunctional, marred by parental drug and alcohol abuse he had minimal knowledge of all connection with Te Ao Māori and had little engagement in education resulting in him in leaving school at year 10. The teen's recidivist and absent father was in and out of prison for much of his childhood with several of his jail terms being for violence and earlier this year in the situation described by Hannum as a peculiar and disturbing, the father and son shared side by side cells in same prison Mm. this kid was screwed six ways to sunday
3: and often kids like this aren't recorded as having fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or or, you know they're they're just there are a lot of kids who are born just slightly sawn off because their mum's hammering and i'm not saying this was the case with him i don't know though that dooming of kids even in utero is so sad
2: One of the key elements they had with this is in terms of prisoner rehabilitation programs. They can have an effect. Celia Lashley, who, for me, her book was just pivotal. I think I read that. uh, Yeah,
3: is it Boys Don't Cry? I think I read Boys Don't Cry and He'll Be Okay.
2: And she talks about this intensively. Um, If you have a chance to see the documentary film Celia, made just before she died, I mean, she we lost her far too soon and she showed her the programs that she was running oh. to help teens like this young man break the cycle ostensibly I know people that have worked within the system in rehab running rehab and they are dedicated passionate they really do want to make a difference and they've got people they there are prisoners prisoners they're motivated to make that change 2016 in 2016 8372 prisoners were in rehab programs.
3: This is shocking, isn't it?
2: 2022 and it, only 2086 what the actual f.
3: Yeah. And I think often uh, perfection's the enemy of completion with this stuff. They're asking, you know, they're saying, well we've got to get we've got a sh- shortage of psychologists. You don't necessarily need psychologists to get someone on to
2: and that's yeah, exactly do what part. Di said.
3: Yeah, in fact, if you've got the choice between waiting a year to talk to a psychologist and right away being taken with to, to be with maybe someone who's trustworthy, who's gone through the same thing right away, it's the latter every time. I, I haven't uh, had anything to drink for almost three years. I was never a problematic person in terms of, you know, I didn't get violent or anything, but I, I drank too much and it it slowed me down. The things I learned in that journey I've shared with other people and, and other people I've talked to have also stopped boozing. Before I did stop, I wrote a list of pros and cons about drinking. And about six months into it, I realized that all the pros were an illusion. Mm. And the cons were were far worse in some ways than I'd thought, and there were a few cons that I hadn't even been aware of. So there are plenty of things you can do with someone who's in that if you do it in a timely way. I think there should be a team going into every uh, police holding cell the morning after and talking to someone who's at that point where they're probably most likely, if you go in and say, hey, do you want to come and live in a camp where you can get some counselling and uh just have a job cleaning up forestry slash on the east coast for six months. We'll take care of everything, yes or no. Mm. That yeah. that sort of thing.
2: Part of the problem too, like as Di was saying, is that a lot of these offenders go in, they get held on remand, right? They're not out, they get held on remand. They get nothing, no services, no nothing whilst you're in mm. remand. They'll finally go up, they will get um have their day in court, they will have be sentenced, and sometimes the sentencing is for time served because you've already been in there on romance, you've served your time, so therefore you get released and you've received no support, nothing, no counselling, yeah. no rehabilitation, no nothing. You're just flung back out into an environment that created this cycle of offending in the first place. Mm. So it is really concerning. It is, it's, it's like this dirty little secret that no one wants to talk about. Before the election, National Corrections Spokesperson Mark Mitchells said Corrections was under immense staffing pressure and struggling to cope, and we have seen that because they've been running a recruitment drive. He believed the department had suffered a total failure of leadership, and as a result, both prisoners and the public were failed. It's very... It's all very well to set a target to reduce a prison population, but we've seen the instances of people leaving prison without proper and adequate rehabilitation, and that has fatal consequences. I see huge parallels in the correction system to the health system. Mm. Those parallels are top-heavy, poor management, poor guidance and leadership from the very top, because let's suppose that it, it's Kelvin. <laughs> I know that the mandates absolutely ripped a hole in what was already a tissue thin and fragile service within corrections because they had they lost a lot of officers. Mm. Corrections was another one of those departments. And COVID, you know, um Di was just saying in an interview, you know, they've still got rheumataka, there's still no in-person visits. Let, COVID let's regulations stop
3: saying COVID, Marie. COVID was a possum crossing the road. The COVID response was driving off a cliff to avoid hitting it.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just, yeah, anywho.
3: Kelvin also blocked man up because (sighs) with his concern being that, well, they'll just join the Tamaki's church. Who cares? Good.
2: As I I just said to die, I said they they blocked it because they were terrified that these men would stop worshipping state and start actually worshipping, you know, the Lord.
3: Yeah, it comes back to that horrible, dawning understanding I've had that governments love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more government. So as a taxpayer, you look at this and go, well, these guys have emptied the prisons significantly, and what few prisoners are there, they've given less rehabilitation to. Yeah. That makes no sense.
2: No. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing that once they get this thing ironed out that someone actually picked up the phone and said to Brian, look, even if they just say what is it that you're doing at Man Up that we can emulate?
3: Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean that would be how uh Luxon would get around he would be able to get around that pressure to have a um a referendum or anything like that. And I think even even Seymour's backing away from it a bit, just say, Hey, look, what we'll do first is we'll just really charge at the the Basic problems. Let's really get big on rehabilitation. Let's really up the achievement through the education system. Uh, let's uh, ensure that you know that we're really looking at other possibilities for the health system failing Maori. In addition to that, it's hopelessly racist. Maybe instead of that,
2: mm.
3: but yeah. no, that story was really. Really shocking, and the lack of coverage of that statistic really was news to me. And it's yeah, a public it interest is. journalism initiative as well, which uh, mm. you know, credit where credit's due. That in in the list of all the public interest journalism I've seen, this is uh, certainly one of the better ones.
2: It's probably for me. It was the most powerful piece in the in in the papers that I read for, across Friday, Saturday, Sunday,
3: for sure. Yeah, you yeah. know, as I've said, I, I've had a bit to do with gangsters, and having had kids. I think one of the effects of having kids is you see the child and everyone more. And I see these these guys swaggering around and I, I just, I see kids. I mean, they sort of all have that slight 14-year-old vibe about them. Um, but if you talk to them, you hear the hurt of being placed in state care, the hurt of having a difficult situation at home. And then doing something stupid and just being branded for the rest of their lives, you know. And, and I think something my old man used to say was, "It's it's not an excuse; it's an explanation." Mm. Yeah. And I think that's important too. You can have compassion without being weak about it, and that's the best way to go, I think.
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's still a little bit of time left until they we know how things settle out. I did have a giggle at Derek Chen's uh, attempt at crystal ball gazing. I think it was quite cute
3: Uh, not verbose
2: oh bless his little heart there are so many different alliterations that this thing could roll out I do feel that it wouldn't surprise me that there are already back channel talks going on with Winston I think Christopher Luxon knows that regardless of how things shake out he's better off to have Winston in the tent than out of the tent and there's experience there let's face it because Luxon doesn't have art and you know why not get get the 42-year veteran on side?
3: Well, that's what Stephen Joyce essentially said. He said, you know, basically, uh, uh, there is also an opportunity in the negotiations for Christopher Luxon to fully step out of the shadow of his predecessor and mentor. For all John Key's strengths, we weren't able to do a deal with Peters on his watch. Forming a durable three-way coalition would be a visible sign that this administration is different in a meaningful way from its antecedents. And that is as it should be. And, and yeah, I, I agree with that. And I'd like to think anyway. New Zealand First have a different attitude in, in terms of, and I think they've telegraphed this well throughout the campaign, you know, we can play politics or, or we can address some of the urgent problems that New Zealand's facing. Hmm. Indeed. Indeed. I'm still reasonably optimistic. Hopefully things shake out in this way. Hopefully... Yeah, I, I I just hope we can approach a more, more than the sum of our parts thing. Yeah, you know, mm. I think that's that's the way New Zealand uh should go, along with a, a renewed commitment to truth and just facing facts. Mm. If we can do that, I think I think we could unleash some power that would get us out of the muck. But it is a case, you know, as I've said before, it's like whitewater kayaking. If you're trying to block truth, if you're trying to cut energy out of an economy, it's like backpedaling in the face of danger, rather than saying, "Okay, well, we're going to use the energy that we've got more wisely, maybe power up even a little bit. We're going to speak the truth, but we're going to aim at our problems and and with some energy and uh, and unity."
2: There you go. Very wise words. If you've got any feedback for Marty and I here on Media Matters, 2057 is the text number. Inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Thank you again. Thanks for your
3: good work, uh, Marie, and look forward to seeing you next week.
2: Yeah, we'll do it all again next week on Reality Check Radio.
0: This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio.
2: That's been a huge conversation with Marty this morning, which has meant there is no time for Woke News of the Week. But thank you for joining me for another great morning of unspoken truth, politics and plenty of opinion. It will be interesting to see what transpires from here with still so much left out on the table. But I don't know about you, I'm feeling a little bit more optimistic as well, like Marty, about where we're heading. I know for one, I'll just keep having courageous conversations. More of that's still here to come on RCR, so don't forget to let us know what you think. Text us at 2057 or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. And remember, if you want to support RCR, buy some merch. Check out our merchandise at realitycheck.radio and click on the Merchandise tab. Thank you for joining me this week on Counterculture. I look forward to bringing you more great interviews and opinion next week.
0: You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky. Horacio. Reality Chick Radio Radio. Radio.